you're listening to Thunder Quack Podcast Network. Ha! Got him! That should keep the first order off our backs. Nice work, Paul. Tim, are we set to make the jump? Yep. The end of the prime in accordance with the rendezvous are set. All right. Strap in and let's get this intel delivered to the resistance. Punch it! You're listening to Star Wars. The saga continues. Your hosts, Kyle Avery, Tim Jirasi, and Paul Herman, are scouring the holonet for news and bringing you all of the latest updates on the future of the Star Wars universe. And the future is bright indeed. So we invite you to join us on this exciting journey as the saga continues. Hey there, Star Wars fans, and welcome back to another episode of Star Wars The Saga Continues, your podcast for all the latest news, rumors, and updates on all the cool and exciting projects coming up in the Star Wars universe. As always, I'm your host, Kyle, and we've got the whole gang back together again for this one. We've got Tim and Paul with us. How's it going, guys? It's going good. I'm in a great Star Wars mood. I have officially started my Star Wars Rebels rewatch in the lead up to Ahsoka last night. So it's fun going back to watch those early season one episodes of Rebels because it's been a long time since I've watched those and they're still really good. I mean, it's going to be great just revisiting the whole series again leading up to Ahsoka. So yeah, I am doing great in the world of Star Wars. Yeah, I... I'm kind of, I think we talked about it a while ago. I'm not sure we did it on the air or behind, you know, after or before recording, but I think I talked about how I think that rebel season one is my second favorite season overall. Um, Because after season four, of course, because that's the, that's the goat. That's the greatest of all time right there. Um, Every episode in that. Some must watch in that season. Not every episode, but it's pretty close. Like that's coming to mind. Well, it's been a while since I, it's, okay, I, I remember we watched season four before Ahsoka, but I, it's been a while. But I remember there's that one episode where like the um, Seth Green voices an alien. It's just it's not like the, the worst episode. Mm, okay, I, I actually forgot about that one. Yeah, that Wait, one. So like, in... they have to season four. Oh, does he play the guy that like the the commander of the the, of the little like they have to take over? Yeah, it's like that's still an important part of the story though. Like, it, no, no, it's not. It, it's just kind of it, it's it's it, people. I think what I've kind of figured out is I think some people mistake or they'll say a, a decompressed story is filler. And I think that is a great example of it's not filler, but it's a decompressed story. It's just stretched out too thin which we might want to get into that. We'll get into more of that kind of stuff a little bit. I think in the Mando season three retrospective a little bit. Um, but um, but yeah, I think season, I mean, and listen, like I don't think this season four is bad by any means. Like that episode was fine. It just wasn't super great. It's not all hits, which you can't. I mean, like every album that I, I love has a song that is my least favorite. It just doesn't always, you know, one I'm always going to like, you know, love every single time i'm looking at uh pink triangle uh or not pink triangle i'm thinking of uh falling for you uh i was gonna say pink triangle thing. this might be the best oh, pink triangle is amazing that's, that's amazing that's an amazing song what am i thinking i'm sorry I, no but uh falling for you i love favorite falling song. for you too yeah, but but i i love it i love it now but it, i just didn't it took a long time to build up to that and and you know i digress but the, the point is is that season four is still to me the, the goat 
Um, but season one, it's not it's not gonna hit like season two's episodes when they're great. They're like they're amazing, mm-hmm. but it's not a very consistent season in my opinion. Whereas if I watch season one, it it just has a great flow all the way through. It's really well written and well like just you know paced, in my opinion. Whereas season two and three aren't as paced as, as well as one and four, but two is probably the worst of like I think as far as pacing goes and like stretching out your seasons. But yeah, Rebels is 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 a great great series and like you kind of talked about too on twitter um tim that like you forgot how fun it was to get those episodes every week and it was Mm -hmm. those were those were really good times because i think i think our expectations were tempered with rebels and i think that helped with enjoyment of it to be honest um you know with live action you have a certain expectation but with with animation for better for worse you're just it's not going to be viewed the same right i mean we all know animation is a viable medium but um an amazing medium but it just you don't have the same expectations on that compared to a live action and even even though anime rebels had some limitations we all know it um it still was a great it, it really surprised us i think in how well it was written and we, uh, we shouldn't have been surprised but i think we were still surprised to be honest how well it was and we in retrospect now it's like oh yeah dave filoni duh right but i mean like mm. You know, he he really showed without George, he still could, he still had it, and I think that still that one little thing, it was like, well, the, you know, we, he had to kind of prove, kind of step out of the light, like, yeah, I, I don't need George necessarily to still tell great Star Wars. We all probably knew that, but I think he proved it. But yeah, Rebels season four is a goat. Well, see, I feel almost the opposite when you talk about the expectations that Rebels had on it because like yes there's less expectation on animation as opposed to live action but this was you know the first thing from Lucasfilm animation after the cancellation of the clone wars which in and of itself you know started off with kind of a mixed reception and then grew into more and more of a fan favorite over the course of its seasons to the point that then you know when it was canceled people were mad about it and then they put it on Netflix and I think a whole bunch of new people discovered it for the first time and were like, oh man, I didn't, you know, I never realized how great this show was and people were loving it. And of course, by, you know, season five and six of Clone Wars, like that animation looked fantastic. Um, And then Rebels like clearly had a bit of a lower budget and the animation wasn't as, you know, sort of detailed and stylish and stuff as Clone Wars was. And so I feel like there was more, um, you know, sort of, sort of more of Rebels not quite meeting that bar and more discussion about, you know, I mean, people were still like, I don't know if you guys remember the days when, you know, they post stuff about Rebels and people were flooding the comments with like, save the Clone Wars, which obviously eventually that worked. But, yep. um, you know, it felt like it kind of lived in sort of like this shadow of comparison for most of its time. Um to her, to me, I mean, I still enjoyed Rebels a lot, like while it was on. But anytime I go back and rewatch it, I'm like, man, I forgot how good this is. Um, yeah, that happened to me with the second episode I was rewatching last night. Uh, Droids in distress, like, man, that's a really good episode. Fun Especially episode, man. End. Fun episode. Yeah, yeah. The battle with Callus uh, and Zeb, their first encounter, like that stuff was great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, that's the other thing too. I mean, with the way that Rebels just kind of tells this continuous narrative i mean there are there are certain episodes where like there's sort of one main story thing that happens and that's kind of like the one thing you remember from it and then you rewatch the episode and you're like oh i forgot that all this other stuff happened before or after you know they spend half the episode on this whole different planet and there's this whole other setup before you know just the r2d2 and c3po story or whatever but um anyway we're getting 
way <laughs> off on this Rebels tangent that was not what we were planning on talking about for this episode. But now this is making me think that uh, maybe for our next episode before Ahsoka comes out, we should maybe do kind of a Rebels um you know, retrospective or maybe yeah. even a, co a commentary on a couple Rebels episodes or something Ooh, like that. But, all right, all right, all right, all right. Yeah, all right. I mean, that that would be fun too. But even just to kind of do a recap of the whole show and, um, you know, just kind of, I don't I, I don't know if anybody would be listening who hasn't watched it and is, is listening to us specifically for a recap. But, you know, we could do kind of a story recap or just kind of a, a summary of the things that we liked about it and the things that we're looking forward to seeing continued into Ahsoka and kind of do a, a Rebels deep dive leading into that. That would be kind of fun. Because, um, yeah, I mean, just, uh, you know, just from talking about it these past few minutes, I'm like, yeah, that would be fun to get into again. Um, I If I if I may suggest, I think we should keep it real. And if we're going to do a, a, a legitimate, um, uh, to me, legitimate, like, uh, commentary, I think we should do uh, the last, the, the last two episodes the last like special so because it leads into ahsoka so i think that might be what we yeah if it. we if we do a commentary i think that would be the one to do it on yeah for sure um I, but like i, I said we also maybe throw a world between worlds in there just for fun <laughs> well true because we it, could it, 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 but i think the there's one more episode before that though that could right. end up being yeah. kind of a long one i mean it still would only be like two hours we could just do a, a four episode rebels commentary i mean um, i wouldn't i wouldn't say no but I think it would also be fun to just kind of do a, a look back on the whole show and, you know, all kind of all the storylines from season one into, I mean, that's one of the things I love about Rebels is the sort of the overarching story from season one to four. And, you know, again, when you rewatch it, like so there's some stuff in those early couple seasons that pays off at the end that you're like, oh, I didn't, you know, you, you mm -hmm. sometimes forget how much of a, a good connected linear story the whole thing is. Um but yeah, so that's definitely something we'll look into and something we'll we'll revisit and talk about more um, before Ahsoka comes out. Um, obviously, you know, Tim and I talked a lot about Ahsoka and the new trailer and stuff on the last episode, too. Um, today, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, Mando season three and just kind of revisit that um, and just kind of, you know, do a little bit of a look back and, you know, some thoughts on the series now that we've kind of had some time uh, since it aired and uh you know let paul share some thoughts because he missed a few of those episodes and then um we also have uh our last panel from phoenix fan fusion that i'll include the audio for which is also a panel about mando season three so that's part of why we wanted to have that discussion um but we'll talk about some recent news stuff first and kind of catch up on everything since the last time we recorded um and obviously the big news going on right now is that all of Hollywood is on strike um, with both the Writers Guild and the, uh, you know, the SAG after the Actors Union um, being on strike against, uh, you know, the big studios and everything, um, which is, you know, kind of shaking things up. There's a lot of projects that have been delayed um, as far as Star Wars moving forward. You know, we don't know what that's going to look like in terms of, you know, future projects maybe being pushed back or anything. Um Obviously, the most important thing, you know, is that these guys are uh, you know, able to be paid a fair wage for the work that they do, especially, you know, all these actors and writers that pour their heart and soul into, you know, these projects that we love and stuff. Um, and obviously, you know, it's a, a big time in Hollywood where just a lot of stuff is changing with the business models of these streaming services and stuff. We've talked about that a lot with, you know, theatrical versus streaming and, you know, just sort of the, the different types of content and the way that all this stuff is changing right now. And just the, you know, it's been a while since they've updated the payments and the contracts and stuff to reflect that and people aren't being paid, 
you know, proper residuals for the stuff that they've been doing and everything. So um, who knows how long it's going to take to get resolved. Obviously, you know, as fans who want to keep seeing stuff get made, like, you know, you hope it doesn't take too long and that they're able to come to a quick resolution so that things can get up and moving again and everybody's happy and, you know, everybody's getting paid well and making great content. And, uh, you know, we don't have to wait too long for these movies and shows and stuff that we're looking forward to, but, um, you know, obviously that's, uh, you know, it's been a big talking point over the past few days. It's funny too, because right before this happened, um, they announced that Bob Iger's contract with Disney had been, uh, extended for another couple of years. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think because, you know, if you remember, like he had retired and stepped down as CEO, they brought in Bob Chapek and then they fired Bob Chapek and brought back, brought Bob Iger back just for a couple of years to kind of help oversee the transition and bring in somebody new that, you know, could do a better job replacing him. And now they've extended him for another two years. And, you know, he's generally seen as I feel like at least one of the more well-liked, you know, kind of big studio executive heads and everything. Um, and people certainly, you know, seem to be glad when he was brought back and all that, but then, you know, he's made some controversial comments about the strike and everything that, you know, seem kind of tone deaf and saying that like, oh, it's, you know, it's not a good time or they're being unrealistic or whatever. And it's like, well, yeah, it's not a good time because there's all this other stuff that's kind of being upended right now. But like in the midst of that, you can't just not pay people. So, um, you know, he's, you know, now suddenly not too popular right now because of all that, um, so, yeah, it's, it's just kind of crazy times. Um, like we said, hopefully things get back to normal as soon as possible. But, um, you know, the big thing is obviously that, uh, you know, these guys get treated fairly and paid well and everything. Yeah. So we'll see what happens. Well, you know, and I, I, it's, I, I for one reason, if, and I'm, I just want to say, and maybe I'm, I'll eat my words with this and I have no problem admitting when I'm wrong for the most part. Um, but, uh, I, I kind of feel in all seriousness that this is a big moment for Hollywood and it feels different than the previous strike. Um, I'm not sure uh, you're a little bit younger, so I'm not sure, Kyle, if you were kind of in in the know or it kind of it kind of scoping out the strike back in 2008, right before the Dark Knight um, came out. Um, it was weird. It was weird times. Yeah, um, I remember it, but I wasn't. I mean, because did that did that start in two thousand eight or was it two thousand seven? Uh, it, it, I think it started maybe it started, It lasted. I want to say it happened in the beginning of two thousand eight, like right. Either, yeah, like I'm right pretty sure it was two thousand eight. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. I thought it was maybe oh seven into oh eight, or I thought it spanned like two years, maybe even oh eight into oh nine or something. Yeah. Anyway, I I remember the strike happening. I remember kind of the fallout and people talking about like shows that weren't as good because of you know them not being able to like the writers having not as long to work on it or you know stuff like yeah. that but well like i certainly like, wasn't as because i was what 16 or 17 at the time yeah. and so i wasn't as in the know and you know sort of understanding as much about the business side of all this as i do now so yeah well and so i say all that because um when it happened you know you remember that they were like their tv studios were just doing whatever they could to put content out anywhere like they were like just rehashing stuff and this really trying to show um the you know the writers what's up and and digital is just starting to get like a little more prominent right and mm -hmm. um and so it, it but things were still pretty much the same at that point you know you still had netflix that was doing physical media mostly you had or all of it um, you had, so things were starting to shift a little bit, but they weren't 
they weren't quite there to the, to get bad. And the problem is now with streaming and the where theaters are and everything like studios have no idea what they're doing. They're, it, it's a different time. And now the writers and the creative people are actually putting their foot down saying, Hey, Mr. Bob Iger, you, instead of getting, you know, 25 million a year, why don't you only get maybe 15 million a year and take some of that, you know, and give it back to the creative force. You know, I mean, you know, it's, we live in, a, I mean, I, I've said before, it's, we live in a country that is that is generated and built on big business, period. Um, and this is coming from a punk rocker who I'm very much about being like your own person and being independent as much as possible. That's why George is always the, you know, he's a he's the he's the greatest of all time. He was he's punk rock for and he's not well, he's not literally punk rock, but he's punk rock mindset of just being and doing yeah. his own thing and within the studio landscape. Yeah, exactly. It's pretty amazing, actually. Um but uh so right now what we're stuck with is you know disney plus bob Iger put put a lot of his eggs in one basket and you know people like want to you know throw what's his name under you know uh chapek under the bus which rightfully so he, he kind of went you know he kind of was belligerent and, and tone deaf. talk about tone deaf but bob Iger set him up a little bit in a wrong way and i think bob Iger was kind of right and kind of wrong I think Bob knew where the future was going. He, he probably knew that Disney had to really go heavy on Disney plus and have everything under one roof and have, and have that one stop shop kind of a thing. The problem is, is that it's not sustainable for the amount of content that they need to kind of keep people interested in their, in their uh, thing and their, and their streaming service. And now as a result of that with streaming booming, plus with the pandemic, it has now killed theaters to an extent of where they're a whole, the whole theater landscape of how they do things or run things and how the studios used to get a bunch of money from the theater, you know, all that, you know what I'm saying? That, that whole uh, program, you could say the old way of thinking has now is now crumbling itself. So you have this new way that is crumbling because they can't figure out how to make this work. And now the old way is crumbling because people don't want to spend a ridiculous amount of money for a movie that, you know, is going to be put on their streaming service in like a month. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and so right now all the big studios are like, what do we do? And we're in a very weird time. And I'll be honest. I think this strike is going to go on way longer than people want it to for both sides. And I think that's going to get ugly. Um, it's getting ugly already. And I, I just don't, I think the studios right now are, they're scared because again, they, because anywhere, no one wants to change, but right now who want, who doesn't want to change? It's the studios because they have right now their whole old way of making money and, and generating millions and billions of dollars is now going to be in jeopardy. And, and if they don't, if they don't figure it out and if I think, cause to me, it's the studios need to figure out how, what kind of model they want. And then they, if they want to keep the theater model going, they need to figure something else out and work with the studio or with the theater owners or whatever, and figure that out because we're in a time where people, we may not get theaters. I think, I think there's a, there's a healthy balance between theaters and Disney plus and streaming services, but the studios need to figure out what that is. And they have to make, they might have to make some sacrifices. And I think right now, they i think they know that and i think that plays a part in this whole thing is that they need they know that their old ways are crumbling and they gotta figure out how they're gonna still make the same money 
without giving the creatives, you know, way more than they they'll they'll bleed into their twenty five million a year, right? So I mean, that I mean that's a very simple simplistic way of looking at it, but that's what we're that's what we're dealing with right now, in my opinion. I, I don't I'm not saying the theaters are the main reason why they're doing this, but it's it is a part of the problem of the old ways are dying and no one wants to adapt in the studios and no one wants to be forthcoming. I thought Bob Iger was probably, you know, he was, he had a little bit of that mindset, but now that that's blown up in his face, he's like, well, we got to pull back. And, you know, one of the guys on the, on the star Wars news that podcast, he said to us on the show was like, I think he's lying. And I thought that was an interesting take, mm -hmm. you know, I, to be, I, I don't know if I agree with it, but to be honest, I'm like, I, I can, I can see that mindset of like, Oh, you know, I, we have to make less because I, cause I think he's telling the truth. To into to some extent, I think he realizes they have to pull back because one, it's kind of ruined. Marvel well, you're, you're talking about on his comments about cutting back on the Star Wars and Marvel. Yeah, stuff. Okay, yeah, yeah. Which, so, yeah, we, we didn't bring that that up yet, but that was another part of it that I was going to mention too. Is you know, as yeah. part of this whole just changing landscape and you know losing money on stuff, he did say that they're going to be um, cutting back on just the quantity of of content and also cutting back spending on stuff yeah. on um for both star wars and marvel which i think is smart because like i mean obviously you hope that that doesn't affect you know the stuff that you love too much especially like the ahsoka trailer comes out it looks fantastic and you're like oh i hope that you know they're able to keep up this level of quality and don't start making stuff that looks low budget or whatever um yeah but i think well, what that means more because he's he's talked about this before too about prioritizing quality over quantity um, and as we know, it seems like at this point, we're probably not getting a season two of Book of Boba Fett. We're probably not getting a season two of Obi-Wan Kenobi, um, which were things that were kind of on the table as possibilities, but were never confirmed. And those seem like kind of easy things to scrap for cost cutting reasons. Um, I, I don't know. I don't know about that. Like, I, and hear, and hear me out. Like, this is what I'm going to say is that I, cause I think it goes more to, marvel than star wars because i think in my opinion star wars is what's driving disney plus more than marvel um and this is from a marvel zombie um you know i mean like i think marvel and honestly i think this is where i think chapek really i think chapek ruined marvel and essentially hmm. in my opinion because um chapek's the one that was like we he's one who pretty much made us made them do all these different series it seems like and you know and now they're you know it's and listen, I, I think the Marvel series for the most part have been okay. They're not been as strong as I want them to be, but like, like secret invasion, no one's really watching that, but it's one of the better and Marvel shows in my opinion. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'll be honest. I've still only watched the first episode of secret invasion and, you know, and, and, and from, and, and like, I enjoyed it. It was, I'm probably still going to watch the rest of it at some point. I just wasn't like, it didn't hook me to where I'm like, Oh man, I got to keep coming back to this, but like just visually and like production wise, it seemed like, you know, your average decent run of the mill, like TV exactly. thriller kind of thing. Thank you. And then I saw something on Twitter that like, it costs like $212 million to produce or something like that, which is like, I mean, that's the type of money that they put into, you know, House of the Dragon or something like that. In fact, I think that's similar to what Andor cost. And Andor was 12 episodes. I mean, Secret Invasion is what, six or eight or something like that. And so six. it's like, how in the world do you end up spending 200 million on that? Like, Again, I'm not even saying that it's, that it's a bad show or anything, but it 
definitely does not look like the type of show that costs that much money to produce. So I'm sure that's one of the things he's talking about in like scaling back on how much they're spending on some of this stuff. Yeah, that's just ridiculous. Well, and, and, and Tim, I'll let you get in here on this. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, I had a lot to say, obviously. But the thing is with with Marvel is that and it brings this is why I'm bringing Marvel and Star Wars together is that I feel that Star Wars drives Disney Plus way more than Marvel. Marvel is it's kind of like the add on, like to kind of keep people like, oh, yeah, like I love Star Wars. I'm gonna get it for Star Wars, but I guess I'll save it for Mar for for Marvel, too. I think they relied on that and they're and because and they over and they, they over flooded themselves and they ruined what they could be using to their advantage. I brought up the fact that why would you have the Mandalorian and and um, the uh, uh, oh my God, Bad Batch going at the same time? I mean, I'm not saying like the like, you know, animations like, you know, the, why people would keep Disney Plus, but it's why would you cannibalize yourself that way? Like you're just not utilizing your 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 what your your content the right way at all, and you know, and that's what doesn't make sense to me. Like you had like She Hulk, and everything else was so like bunched up with other things. It's like, what are you guys doing? And I think that to me, and it's is not like they were in a position where they had to bunch it up because they had so much other content exactly. that they had to get out. <laughs> exactly. So I feel like because they're afraid of losing subs. They had to like, and I think they realized it's a losing game because you can't keep putting out this content because you're not going to, and I've said, I've said this for a long time, there's a ceiling and they've reached the ceiling. And I think they realized, oh wait, we've reached the ceiling and we've also kind of damaged one of our, in my opinion, we've damaged one of their franchises, you know, one of their golden gooses because they, they went too much to the well. And, you know, I think Star Wars, because they were in the, in the situation it was in before, which was like, again, I'm not, I, I like the sequel trilogy, but it didn't leave a lot of people like, you know, it's more controversial at this point, at this point in its, in its career. Um, Star Wars in a weird place. And the Mandalorian was kind of like this, you know, it was the spear, the spearhead for obviously the whole, the whole, um, the whole app. And so now Star Wars has kind of made Disney plus what it is, in my opinion, and it's kind of sustained it. I mean, yeah, but was Book of Boba Fett amazing? It wasn't amazing, but people still watched it. Uh, people still watch Obi-Wan Kenobi a ton. Uh, you know, the Star Wars is driving it. So I feel like there's a place for it, but it, it needs to be toned down, especially I think it's more to be more so Marvel. Marvel has way too much going on and they need to pull it back. And I think that's and I think right now and I'll end it here. I think when the studios can figure out like how can we utilize our Disney Plus, our streaming, our streaming app, but also how we can utilize movie theaters and any avenue we can, like uh, gasp. I know this is not a very big money making mar market, but physical media thing, whatever you can do to make extra money, do it. Like I just don't get like why Disney doesn't just say, "Let's make some extra money. We're, we're hemorrhaging money. Why don't we put out gasp, uh, Mandalorian season uh, one on 4K." on a special like $150 set. You have my money and you have <laughs> all of our, and you, and you, you don't think even if people who don't even own 4Ks are going to buy that because they're collectors. Like guys, like figure it out. You know, I mean, like it's not, this is not rocket science. You know, I ever Sean from, you know, Marvel News goes like, it makes it make as much money. I mean, you're, you're right. I'm not arguing that. Like, I'm not saying like, it's the same thing, like one for one, but why not make an extra, couple hundred million dollars opposed to nothing like disney plus is not it's it's you found the ceiling you know and the floor they're gonna find the floor soon 
And when I, I've said before too, they reach the ceiling, it's there. And now they got to find where the floor is. Once they find the floor, that's when the 4Ks will, and the, that physical media will start coming out. So it's Maybe a weird time. We'll see. Well, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Whatever. well, well see. you know, I, I mean, I, and I have a limited understanding of how all this works from the business side, but I assume part of the reason that they don't do physical releases of that stuff is because maybe out of a fear. I know you're saying that some people, you know, are just going to get it as collectors anyways, but I'm sure there are some people that maybe have Disney plus just for the star Wars stuff. And if you could buy, especially a higher quality 4k disc of the Mandalorian, then maybe you're going to cancel your Disney plus subscription and just watch the stuff that you can buy on physical media. And even if you're making, you know, more on a, a you know, $50 collector box set than you are on one month of Disney plus, I, I, understand to a certain extent that part of the way that they make money off of these things and get money from investors and the, the stockholders and all this stuff is just in the number of subscribers of having that constant stream of revenue every month um, and sort of like the, the valuation of Disney Plus as a product. I mean, that's part of why, and again, I don't fully understand all this, but when they keep like removing stuff, you know, taking shows off, you know, part, I always I had been assuming that it was just like, oh, so we don't have to pay people residuals for it. And it turns out they were barely paying anybody any residuals to begin with. But it's more about like the value of the content on the platform or something like that. So I'm sure maybe that's part of the reason why they aren't doing physical. Releases well, stuff. I mean, again, I mean, that's just part of all the, the complex physical know. media. Like, here's the thing, man, like physical media is not going to drive people to cancel Disney Plus. It's that maybe a few but not enough to make it like them fear. There's no way, especially because everyone tries to argue with me. No one buys physical media. Well, you're right. Then why are they so scared? If no one buys physical media, then why are they scared to release it? And part of it is they're, they're, I think they're just, I, to me, like there's the fear is somewhat there, but I think also they're just trying to make it as sacred as possible. But that's why I said, like, once they find that floor, which is going to happen, they're going to figure out like what the balance is. Cause they don't know what the balance is yet. No one does. Again, that kind of goes back into the problem of where they're at, why people are striking. They don't know the balance of like, mm -hmm. how much can we get these? Because I've said before, there. I think movie theaters, in my opinion, and Star Wars could be the catalyst for it. You know, bring back the Star Wars. This would, be, this would be the catalyst. In my opinion, I think that um, movie theaters and Disney Plus and these streaming, they need to work together, not against each other. And what I mean by that is, let's have them broadcast, you know, fun events like, like Obi-Wan Kenobi, uh, you know, for people who want to watch it in the theater and do it discount prices, things like get people more familiar with the theater and loving the theater experience, mm -hmm. you know, get more premium screens on, on, on the, at the theaters, get rid of the smaller screens, get only big screens, you know, figure out a way to get, because here's the problem. People don't want to go to movie theaters because they don't need them. But if you make it a comfortable experience and like make, make people realize like, let's be real. I'd rather watch, I would watch all these, I would watch all these in a theater. And I know everyone would, but a lot of us would. And I feel like if the more we work with the theater and we get people more used to going back to the theater, they'll be, they'll be more inclined to be like, you know, I want to go see Barbie on the big screen because, uh, you know, they're, they're going to obviously, but like, you know, cause it's a huge movie right now. I'm not gonna go see it, but that's outside the point. Um, but, but, but again, for me, like, Hey, maybe the fact, you know, if, if I wasn't into the theater as much, maybe, you know, I'd be more inclined to do it if, uh, if I was going to a theater more often, you know, you, should, you see what I'm saying? Like, I feel like there's, there's a way to make this all work together, including the physical media, but because 
let's be real studios they're not they're they are greedy and they are also they are just stubborn as hell and that's why i think we don't have physical media of this stuff i think disney is being very stubborn and they're being very because look at warner brothers they have their own app and they release everything on physical media everything they have no problems and they're not worried about losing subscribers and maybe they don't have as many and that's why but they have no fear and I feel like they're like, I, I appreciate that. And I love supporting when they release physical media out there because I buy it and they keep putting it out there because people buy it. And I think Disney's just being stubborn. They want, and like Sean said, they want, they're just trying to drive up digital, 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 digital. And that's fine. But like people are already there. They're already doing things digitally. Like that's not going anywhere. So to me, it's, it's part of fear, but mostly it's at a stubborn stubbornness and just being like the old ways of like, no, our old ways, the old, it, to me, you have to, it, you have to, you have to change and adapt. And to me, like it's, they're trying to adapt at their own rules and that's not how it works. You got to adapt and, and kind of like figure out like within like, okay, we have to let up a little bit. And, you know, and, and, and Iger's smart for that stuff, but evidently he's not that smart because he's trying to act like they can't give too much to the creative people and why he makes 25 million dollars so that is just that is just ridiculous so yeah. yeah he's an idiot yeah and they keep flip-flopping between you know when it comes to paying people it's like oh the market's volatile and streaming isn't actually making us that money uh, making us that much money and you know woe is us but then they turn around and tell the share the shareholders they're doing great so that they keep the stock prices up and you know they pay bob Meyer 25 million dollars a year so yeah they need to start spreading some of that around more but i don't know tim what do you think yeah, I mean, I'll just add, like you guys said, this is kind of an unprecedented time that we're in right now with movies, TV shows, and all this stuff. Because as you mentioned, Paul, the writer strike in 2008, I remember that one. But anything before that, I really, I don't remember what when was the last strike um, before 2008. And I think it's been really long. I think I read somewhere like the last time the writers and the actors were on strike was when uh ronald reagan was acting and was part of like the yeah the actors union so it's been a super long time since something like this happened and yeah i just think things are definitely going to be different i agree what you said too paul how i I could see this kind of dragging out for a long time and longer than uh people would expect and what we would hope for really because and i'm just preparing myself for just tons of delays for all these projects um just across the board but when it comes to star wars like the three movies we got that were announced at celebration this year expect to wait uh longer for them <laughs> to uh coming out for whatever i know they haven't set any official release dates yet besides some of those dates they threw around um a few months ago um or not days but years um but i just think it's going to be longer now for all this stuff uh because of what's going on i mean not having writers working actors working I mean, that's a huge deal so um yeah it's just strange times that uh to be involved with all this stuff now with um when it comes to entertainment and the movies and tv show business with all the stuff that uh we love talking about but at the same time it's like it'll be it has to be done for these creative people actors and writers to get what they deserve because we wouldn't be enjoying all this great stuff, all this great content that we've gotten over the years if it's not for them. So for all these talented people who bring us such joy and entertainment, yeah, it, it's going to be worth it to kind of hold off to make sure they get what's, what they're owed and so they can continue to give us all this great stuff. But it is just such a strange time uh, to be in the midst right now. Uh, with, you know, In the midst of summer movie season, some big movies 
um, that we got already this year. I think it's been a great year for movies. And so um, it's almost like you kind of have to almost preparing for the time where how it was in the pandemic, where expect a bunch of release dates for upcoming movies um, to get pushed back. I think I saw a report today that, you know, Warner Brothers is already kind of contemplating pushing back movies for this year, like Dune into 2024 and um, other stuff that's kind of on the horizon for the next big tentpole movies to be pushed back. So it's almost like we're heading back to that period again, where how it was in the pandemic, where just there might be a period where there are um, no movies or big movies uh, to go out and see it um, until not during this time when the strike gets resolved, because even when it gets resolved, if things if it goes for a long time, they're just the aftermath yeah. and the effects afterwards. It's going to be yeah. It's point. not like all that stuff is suddenly going to be ready to come exactly. Out. Yeah, yeah. The, I, I love how like what's this uh, screw over theaters more? So you know the people who are like trying to stay alive and what's just push things out and pretty right. much cannibalize. <laughs> which you know, and really quick, I want to add real quick. I think I've said before on the show that I think studios need to buy theaters and have their own exclusive theater chains. And to hmm. that, that to me seems like the no brainer of all of them because you, dr- you control. But I feel like, I, like, I don't know if it's a union, but I know there is like a, a guild or an association or something of theater owners. So I feel like there's something that would prevent that from happening. Yeah. It's called, um, it, 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 here's the thing. It's called like they're on their last leg. And they may not have a choice. And I'm I'm being yeah. serious. Like I think I think Warner Brothers is already um partnered with a studio, if I'm not mis- or a theater chain, if I'm not mistaken. So they've kind of already um I thought it was interesting. This is during the pandemic because um I think Batman was only gonna be in certain like it was majority of chains, but like it was something weird like that where I'm like, interesting. So I, to me, that'll be dissolved because what's going to happen is they're because they're already in bankruptcy. If like they if they if, if the theaters cannot sustain or how about this? If the studios can't figure out a way to release movies the right way instead of like, let's release all these movies in the summer or just can't, you know, it's just like idiots, you know, and and actually like spread things out and let theaters and like give again, work with theaters to try to get people into the theaters more then they may not have a choice. Because they're gonna be like, we can't, we can't stay open, and then if they can't stay open, what do, what do, what do the studios do? I mean, think about that. If the theaters can't stay open, because because they're not making enough money off these movies that are coming out, like the summer is a great example. Everyone wants the bull crap on the Flash, you know, and say, you can say what you want about the movie, and everyone talks about how it was it was a huge bomb, you know, um, and everything, but. The thing is, like, this is, you know, um, this to me, this is, yeah, to me, this is look at, you know, Indiana Jones. You look at um, you look at uh, the Transformers movie. They all underperformed. Even Mission everyone, Impossible, I think, didn't do as good as um, they were anticipating. Impossible is going to make all this money back. But it's like it's 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 under it kind of underperformed. It didn't do cr- bad, but it's kind of underperformed what mm. they wanted it to do. And it's got to get completely destroyed by Barbenheimer. So, (laughs) I mean, we're in a, they're in a weird state right now and they really have no choice but to look at things. And and studios may just not have a choice, you know, because if they, if they lose theaters, let's just say those guys go, you know what, we're shutting down. We can't stay open. What are they going to do? Because that money-making aspect will be gone. And I'm not saying it's going to happen next week, but in the next Eight, 10 years it could legitimately be they could be done and what who picks up the mantle after that will it be the studios i don't know 
Yeah, I don't know. We'll see. I mean, it's hard for me to gauge because I feel like every movie I've been to this summer has been pretty full. I mean, even like I saw The Flash and I know that one didn't make a lot of money, but I saw it opening weekend and like the theater is pretty packed. I've seen Spider-Verse five times and like all of those showings were packed out. Um, even Indiana Jones, like I saw I've seen that twice now. And, uh, you know, all those showings. Yeah, are pretty but, full. but so dude, like, but they're but they're not. But they're not like but that's what. Oh, no, no, I know. I, well, that's what I'm saying. Like, I, I know that the, the box office is down, but I'm just saying, like, for me personally, when I go to a theater, it's not like it's dead and there's nobody there. Um, but obviously there are some theaters like that. So I'm like, I don't know if maybe the problem is there's just too many theaters. Like maybe they need to, no. to have it's you not. Know, fewer theaters, fewer movies, make it more of a, you know, create more of a demand for it. I don't know. But it's, I mean, obviously there's, there's a lot of different, you know, factors going into those problems. Um, well, Indy, and you're, Indy, I mean, Indy did not perform well. Transformers didn't perform well. You're right. Some movies that did do well, like some, cause yeah. listen, like, 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 like again, Spider-Verse was, a, was a, ma was a massive hit and Mario was a massive hit and Guardians was, a, was a pretty decent hit too. Right. Like, but mm -hmm. I think here's, here's the key. They're all pretty spread out. Yeah. Like they were like, they, those the are all thing. exactly. And then there shouldn't had, be the summer movie season anymore. For no, blockbusters. it's, and I've said that it needs to be the year round blockbuster. Yeah. Spread it out. Cause I think flash would have performed much better if it wasn't just on top of like, spider verse you know if it came in, out in last november when it was supposed to <laughs> it, I, the movie probably does pretty well to be honest you yeah, know because everyone, everyone can be like oh the flash you know huh i always see negativity on the flash online <laughs> like maybe they might see less negativity online uh if they you know like people weren't had a, had a hate campaign but that's a whole beside the point but like but i think more people would have given it a chance because what's going on in november not a lot you know maybe thanksgiving but that's it and so I, I just, I just think that like, we're, I, 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 Indiana Jones is a great example of people thinking like, oh yeah, we've got this. And it's like, oh wait, we don't have this. And these franchises and all these, these sure things, you need to be smarter about it. The old, again, the old way is done. You can't, the summer blockbuster is dead. And if you want to cannibalize each other, then you're going to be losing a lot of money. And, you know, I think Barbenheimer is a great, a weird thing. If you think about it, because Barbie is, this, is, is this huge thing. that has been kind of been built up and has a lot of buzz. And then an Oppenheimer is counter programming and they're going to do great. And you know, mm -hmm. who's really upset about it? Mr. Tom Cruise. He is probably <laughs> crying right now, throwing things around, jumping on his bed, you know, throwing things. And I love Tom Cruise, but, and people are trying to tell me like, oh, MI is a great, it's, it, it's it, measured impossible is going to make all its money back or it's going to make, you know, international box office i'm like yeah do you know what else is gonna make an international box office uh yeah barbie and oppenheimer i mean maybe not as big oppenheimer, oppenheimer may not be as big as in the, in internationally but barbie is, a, is gonna be a world is a worldwide phenomenon man and this oppenheimer being around and taking up premium screens on the other side it's like mission impossible i've said before it, it ain't gonna break six million six hundred million which that's a big deal you know, there's a reason why Mission Impossible opened on a Wednesday. You know, they, they didn't want to open on a That's Wednesday. True. Yeah. Yeah. They opened because they, they needed it. And people are trying to act like, oh, this is, this is a successful movie. It's like, it's not like, a, again, it's not The Flash. I know The Flash is a bomb. And I love the movie. And I can admit that. 
but don't act like any not you obviously Kyle, but like don't act out there that mission impossible and indie like we're we're fine like they they underperformed and they did they did poor like indie did i think poorly with with the budget it did poorly oh no absolutely and look I, not to be like a, a naysayer but like I thought from the beginning, like ever since they announced Indiana Jones five, I was like, is there really going to be that much excitement for this? I mean, yeah. Um, well, wait, wait, can I pitch this to you guys really quick? I know this is a great conversation, by the way. I love this. Um, but cause I think star Wars kind of is, it's interesting it, going back to star Wars. It kind of, it shows you how versatile star Wars is because Indiana Jones is about an aging person. Right. Mm -hmm. And I've said before, you know, you star Wars has an entry level for all these different generations. Well, as any does it, and if you think about it, I was thinking about this too. I'm like, you know, I, I hate to get morbid, but a lot of indies audience, they've passed away. Like, think about it. Like, we are a part yeah. of indies audience, but mm -hmm. a big portion of those people, like, they they they've kind of died off. I mean, it's it's not weird to think about. Like, like yeah, and even you talk about you know, like again with with uh star wars like a lot of people go see it because they grew up on it but some people grew up with the originals some people exactly. some people grew up with the, some people grew up with the originals in 77 some people like me grew up you know with the originals in the early 90s when that was still the only star wars there was but they were introduced to it and then you know some people grew up on the prequels some on clone wars or rebels so yeah you're right like it's one of these things that keeps refreshing for generations whereas i feel like indiana jones like you kind of had to grow up with it in the 80s. I mean, even for me, like, I I really enjoy those first, I was going to say the first three movies. I've never really loved Temple of Doom, but like Raiders of the Lost Ark and Last Crusade, classics, great movies. But like my level of Indiana Jones fandom is not as high as some other Absolutely. people that are older and were around at that time. So for me, like, I was never really that hyped about Indy 5. Like, and like, I've seen it twice now. Really, I just went to see it opening weekend and then... um like uh you know ended up going and seeing it with with family for someone's birthday who wanted to see it and i was like i don't need to see it again but like sure i'll go whatever um but yeah i know like people that are you know even younger than me or people that didn't grow up with it or whatever like it's not a, a big cultural thing like star wars is um so anyway all that to say like i'm not surprised that that didn't make a ton of money i think my point was just that like i've still been seeing a lot of people at the theater this summer and so it doesn't seem like like even though there are a lot of individual movies that have been underperforming it doesn't seem like all these theaters are dead and empty and you know threatening of you know like they're going to close tomorrow or anything like that but i can see where the downward trend is troubling for for theater owners and for you know to serve the the future prospects and obviously like you said the fact that nowadays people are conditioned to just have a movie release on disney plus or on streaming or have it available on digital like a month after it's out in theaters whereas um, well, now they're trying know, to go they, back and distance that gap for when they release it on the streaming platform which is probably smart because i mean you know back in the day you used to have to wait six months or more for stuff to come out on you know vhs or dvd or whatever and so it was like if you wanted to go see a movie you went to see it in the theater Yep. Um, and now it's like, you know, you kind of balance that, like, okay, what do I really want to go see in the theater? Because there's so much stuff coming out and also because like prices are so high and, you know, inflation, like stuff's expensive everywhere, but you know, theater ticket prices are up and you kind of got to decide like, okay, what movies are really worth it that I want to go spend in the theater. And then, you know, if, if the new like Pixar movie or something is going to be on Disney plus in a month, maybe I'll just wait to watch that one at home. Um, then, of course, the problem is 
you know, then it ends up with a low box office, but also like all the people deciding to wait and watch it at home, like that money from your Disney plus subscription is not going to the creatives that made that movie. Like, you know, the box office is. And so that's another part of, you know, why this, uh, the strike is going on. So, um, yeah, it's crazy. I mean, like you said earlier, Paul, like I definitely think this is going to be a big moment because there is so much shifting stuff with all these different business models and systems and everything. Um, and some of these systems in place for like the, the actors contracts and the way that they're paid and stuff is so outdated. I mean, I've been reading up on just some of the stuff about the strike and it's like, there's things in place that haven't changed since like the seventies. Um, and so I think it really is going to be just a, a big moment between, you know, just sort of the relations between the actors and the writers and the studios and stuff and, and the way that people are paid and all that, but also just the way that they, do business like yeah maybe they are gonna have to figure some new things out and uh shake some things up but um yeah it'll be it'll be interesting to see sort of the long-term effects of all that i mean the other part of it that we haven't really even touched on i mean part of the thing you know it's kind of like the issues that people are striking over it's kind of two big things one is just the uh you know the residuals and the payments and people you know not being paid living wages and the other thing is this whole new era of ai Yep. And all this new technology and stuff. And, you know, they're threatening that, like, oh, if the writers aren't going to work, then we're just going to have AI write scripts or, um, you That's know, stuff scary the, <laughs> yeah, and stuff with the Actors Guild where they're like, oh, they want to pay people, especially like smaller actors and background extras and stuff. Um, there's this proposal where they want to pay them for like one day of work to just scan their face and then they can make, you know, digital copies of them and, you know, use them in, in projects and stuff for as long as they want to um, and not have to like pay actors to be on set. Um, which like, it makes sense that from a studio standpoint, that this is where this technology is headed, that they're going to want to use these new tools to cut costs and do things cheaper and faster and stuff. But it's like, this is an entertainment business built on, you know, again, artists and actors and writers and people that make this stuff and you can't just cut them out of it and expect them to be fine with it. So, um, yeah, it's, it's scary to think where that stuff is headed. I don't know about you guys, but it even made me a little, you know, it, it gave me a little bit of conflicted feelings about even some of the stuff we've seen in star Wars with like rogue one with the, you know, the digital like Tarkin and Leia and stuff. And then see, you know, the way that they use like the deep fake technology to do Luke and the Mandalorian and stuff like that. Um, so I remember in the Disney gallery for uh, Mando season two, like they spent a good portion of time talking about that. And John Favreau almost giving this cautionary message of like, we have to be careful of the way yeah. we use this because it could be used. Um, you know, in, in the wrong hands. And obviously it's not like Star Wars was sort of a pioneer in this and like nobody else has done it. I mean, heck, you know, we've seen stuff where like they do something in a movie or a show and like some whiz kid on YouTube does a better version of it through some deep fake program in a couple of days and then ends up getting hired to, you know, work on the next season of Mandalorian. But, um, you know, it, it almost gave me a little bit of an icky feeling that like Star Wars helped contribute to this, this technology, technological trend that is now like cutting people out of their jobs or threatening to at least. Um, and I really hope that, you know, again, that they're able to resolve this in a way too, where people are prioritized over technology and that, um, you know, we're not all just watching movies created by robots in a few years. Cause nobody wants that except for the studios that think we're all dumb enough to still pay for it. So um, 
you know, as a fan of movies and storytelling and art created by artists, like I really hope that we do not end up heading in that direction. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's what Lucas, Lucas always preached as far as like him innovating all the digital technology and special effects as far as making sure it's just being used as a tool to tell your stories and not like to fully take over like the scary <laughs> scenarios that kind of a lot of people are afraid of might happen with AI. But um, that's why I think right, right now, as far as what's been used in Star Wars, what we've seen in The Mandalorian, that's like, I think just the best way to be doing it right now where you got the actual actor there performing with Mark Hamill, but using that technology that's there, it's a great piece of technology to use as a tool to tell a story you wouldn't be able to before with a character like Luke at that point in his life. But again, it's still, you still have a performance there with um, Mark Hamill uh, being on there and having his blessing to do it. So I think that's the important part of it too, because you don't want just studios and uh, filmmakers to be doing all this stuff to recreate actors without their permission or their approval and just like just running wild with doing all this crazy stuff with that technology that's available out there, which again, if you have AI writing scripts and then using AI technology to create actors, I mean, that's the scary part. We're just like a fully made AI movie. It's just, yeah. Um, that that's leading down a dark and dangerous place as Yoda said in Revengers. <laughs> uh, but I mean, that, that's why I think, as I said, the stuff that we're getting right now, it's kind of, like a good balance of how that technology is being used as a tool just to tell um, a story that uh, these creators want to tell. So, um, but yeah, it's definitely a big issue and rightfully so for actors and writers to be concerned about, because that's just to, to full for studios to fully go down that path is just, yeah, that's, it's not going to be good for anybody for obviously the creatives, but even for us, as just people are consuming this entertainment, the quality is not, not going to be the same, no matter how good this AI technology is going to be. You just need that human element. You need like that mm -hmm. blood, sweat and tears that these creative talented people put into their work. And that they're so passionate about uh, like AI technology, is not AI technology is not going to be about passionate to tell a particular story like someone would. So it's just, it's got to be a, a right balance. I, I, as far as like AI, as far as writing scripts and all that stuff, that should just be never, be used at all um but as far as like for visual effects technology i think that's where you have to have a good balance i think it is a good tool and a bit of technology to use um when in certain cases and when needed to tell your story so but yeah it's definitely uh, one of the bigger issues involved with the strike and one that uh hopefully the studio exec executives kind of see the potential danger that lies in there if they're really trying to push it and that should be something uh, where they they really concede to whatever de demands they have for that to uh, the actors and writers on that front. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, it'll be be interesting to see where it all goes. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, you're right. Like it is like for visual effects and stuff. You know, it's it's a good tool to use. Um, you know, the the digital replacement and stuff. But even that is like not entirely necessary because like with Luke, for example, in the Mandalorian, like you could just have an actor play that part. And I feel like part of the reason, like, is it cool to have a, a Luke cameo where he looks exactly like a young Mark Hamill? Like, sure. 
But I feel like even part of that is also like a studio driven money decision because we know like, oh, they recast a young Han Solo for Solo and then that movie didn't perform as well as they wanted it to. And so now it's like they're like, oh, well, we have the technology. Let's just make them look exactly like the original trilogy actors. Like, I hope that in Dave's movie, um, you know, especially if it does end up being like an heir to the Empire adaptation and we get Han, Luke and Leia as like major characters in that story, just recast them. Um, I think that's gonna, I don't think they will <laughs> see, I, I, you might be right, but like, but I mean, who knows this could, it could depend on the provisions of, of the strike too, yeah, you know, right. the way that this all plays out. I mean, that's sort of different from AI because, you know, you still have visual effects artists that are creating that yeah. as opposed to, um, I mean, I guess, yeah, you were the, the AI thing was more kind of with the, uh, especially with the, the writers and you know ai generated scripts and stuff um whereas the but, actors like i don't know it's it sometimes the line gets blurred between what is like true artificial intelligence creating stuff versus what is people just you know having a visual effects artist put somebody's face on something which still yeah. is like like again they're doing that to just try to get around like paying actors to be on set um but yeah i mean you're right like from a, a from Disney's standpoint, especially with the way that they did, uh, you know, Harrison Ford with, um, you know, the, the DH, um, Harrison Ford and Dial of Destiny. It's like, I could see them trying to do that with a young Han, Luke and Leia. And I'm sure that Bob Iger would prefer to have it that way and think that people are going to want to show up to see that. But I think especially kind of with the attitude towards the strike right now and all this AI stuff and for, the just sort of the long-term prospects of of filmmaking and stuff um i feel like it would be better if you just had some good actors that you know looked similar enough for the part um especially because you know this stuff looks good now because it's like you know the the technology obviously is at the best it's ever been but uh, you know is that going to hold up 10 20 years from now when the technology gets even further ahead than that um yeah because rogue one is already starting to kind of show its age with yeah yeah definitely yeah um, we, are, we are we are going down a, a dangerous path of conversations i have like a million things i want to i want to talk about but i'm, <laughs> I'm gonna hold back i think this could be a whole episode in and of itself honestly because how much star wars has one i think pushed that and and because there's a lot of things you just said right there i'm like oh god i could talk about this forever because there's there's pros and cons to everything. And yeah. I think that, but I definitely feel, I'll, I'll just say that I think we should save it for a different, for, for a slow news day at one point. This, this, this ain't going anywhere anytime soon. Let's be real. Yeah. Um, no, this is definitely not the last time we'll talk about this stuff. Right. So I'm just going to leave that here. I think it's, it's, there's pros and cons to everything. And I think with, with this AI and, and this whole thing with, you know, with Luke and, and Han or Luke and, and uh, I said Han, uh, but I mean like Indiana Jones and, and whatnot I, in, in Rogue One. There's there's a lot to talk about, I think, on, on, on every side of that. So I want to say we should say that for a, a separate question, because I'll be honest. Um, let's be real. This is going to probably this will affect things like historical films going forward and in entertainment and probably mostly Star Wars. But I'll leave it there because I think that's a good way to kind of pick it up again in maybe a month or something like that when we have a slow news day after ahsoka is done um we can touch on this because i think this is a it's a bigger deal than people think and i think there's star wars will be right in the heat of it for because of the past present and the future 
Yeah. Well, I mean, like I said, there's, you know, there's a difference between just digitally de-aging people and just using AI generated yeah. technology to, to just replace stuff created by humans. And that obviously is what we don't want. So, um, yeah, I don't know. We'll, we'll see what ends up happening. Um, like I said, it's, I think this really is going to be, uh, you know, shake some things up. We'll see what the after effects of this are. I like, I hope it doesn't go on too long. I definitely could see it going on a long time because there's a, you know, just from things I've heard, it's like, there's a lot of sticking points in these negotiations and these contracts and stuff. And a lot of things that the two sides are very far apart on. Um, and because this whole thing is so complex, I feel like it could take a long time just to work out all the little details and get to a resolution that both sides are happy with. But at the same time, the longer it draws on, you know, that's not good for either side. And I know, you know, there was some anonymous studio executive that made a comment to a publication saying that, like, oh, our strategy is just to to draw it out as long as possible because all these, you know, these artists and stuff that, like, don't have that much money, like, they'll start losing their houses and not being able to pay bills and stuff, and then they'll be desperate. And of course, that's horrible and a completely inhumane way to go about it. Um, and obviously, the studio heads have much deeper reserves of cash than, you know, the, the average working artist. But it's also, like you said, like, the longer this draws on, the more it's going to push back future projects, and there's not going to be as much new content coming out. And that's going to hurt the studios as well and be bad for business. So it's like, I would think that both sides would want to get this resolved as quickly as possible. Um, it's just a matter of, you know, how long it's going to take to uh, come to a resolution on some of the stuff that they're so far apart on. But um, yeah, I, I, you know, at the end of the day, the most important thing, like I said, is just that, uh, you know, these working class actors and writers and stuff, the people that, you know, work so hard to make all this stuff that we love, that they are paid fairly, treated fairly, that, um, you know, hopefully they get uh, as, as much of the stuff that they're looking for as possible. Um, and yeah, we'll, we'll go from there um, and see, you know, kind of over the coming weeks and months and stuff, what the repercussions of this are, how much stuff starts getting pushed back and, you know, the 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 long-term effects on this of on this on star wars and entertainment and stuff is you know secondary but it'll be interesting to see just as a star wars podcast like how this is affecting stuff into the future that we're talking about so um yeah i think there's there's more we could talk about but i think we've kind of you know talked that to death enough for now but let's get to uh you know a little bit of our, our star wars discussion for this episode um like i said we wanted to kind of just circle back on Mando season three. Now that it's been a couple months since it ended and, uh, you know, kind of share some thoughts on that. I don't know, Paul, I'll start with you. I mean, I don't have any like specific, you know, this isn't going to be like a, a big major deep dive or anything like that, but, um, I don't know any like particular thoughts you want to share on uh, Mando season three since yeah. you were here or just anything you think about, you know, just sort of looking back on it now, a couple months after it's aired. Yeah, you know, I, I think Mando season three is very interesting because it really shows you where people have high expectations of something that they love, right? And even something as soon or as recent as Mandalorian, you know, comes out, the people are ready to, to kibosh it as soon as it doesn't meet every single, you know, thing they expect it to happen, you know, to have happen, whether it be mm -hmm. from a story standpoint, from a quality standpoint, from a special effects standpoint to a direction standpoint of, a, you know, tone, whatever. 
And it's amazing to me that people, and listen, I, I, I definitely have issues with the season. People are acting like this season's just like, no, this is no good. I'm just like, how are these, these people are insane. Like, I don't get it. Like, I just don't get it. I've seen people, it, it, people don't have to like it. That's fine. But it, it baffles me. And, and some of those people are were really he heavily critical on seasons one and two. And I'd be like, hey, that's consistent. I get it. I, I don't feel, in my opinion, that season three was a drop off of, of, of quality by any means. Um, it, I think the it's just a different it's a different season. And with that, you have different strengths and weaknesses. I personally, if I take my heart out of the equation of just like of my enjoyment as a as a storyteller and as someone who likes to create stories and things like that, I will tell you that I think season three is much better than season one. Um, but season one also had a lot going for it because it was, it was laying the foundation down. So it's hard to, it's, it's hard for me to compare the two, but if I had to sit down and watch one or the other, I'd watch season three warts and all. And I think that season three has so much going for it that I feel like the highs hit really high. Um, but the lows are a little bit lower than some of the other seasons. And that's, I think where people are really critical of it. And I think the one of the biggest contributors of why people don't like the season as it feels like as a whole, right? At least from my opinion, from my from what I can tell, people who are on Twitter complaining, it feels like there's more complaints about this post Book of Boba Fett and Obi Wan because of the pandemic and everything like that's been going on. And things were kind of weird there for a minute, and and what what have you. I'll be honest, I think the first episode really hurt the season. I rewatched the first two episodes, most of most of the second episode that I didn't finish it, but um, I rewatched the last two episodes uh, this week, uh, last week, and I've watched a bunch of them. I've watched the pirate like a million times. I love that episode. Um, but I rewatched the first episode today and I, I was reminded because I hadn't watched it in a while. And I was reminded of like, you know, this was not a bad episode but it's very anticlimactic in my opinion. Like it, it doesn't, it's, it's cool. There's really cool stuff that happens, but it's not like, ah, oh, yeah, I can't, you're right. We, we're, we're here. We're back, baby. Like, it's not that. Mm -hmm. And I feel like episode season two, episode one was that. And oh, it yeah. made, <laughs> it made, and, and like, and, and maybe that's unrealistic. I don't know. And maybe they have to really go hard on these on episode ones for, you know, for Star Wars for here on out. They have to. It's because I feel that also hurt Obi-Wan. You know, like I feel because mm. I rewatched Obi-Wan um, uh, recently from like episode two on. And it, it, it to me, that, that's, that series is so good, but it has some warts on it. that are really apparent. And part of it's being the pandemic, to be honest. Um, it has a little bit of that secret invasion feel, in my opinion, uh, Kyle. Like it, 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 I've, I've said that before, and um, I think that first episode did a lot of damage because it's got some great stuff in it, but it's got some clunkiness stuff in it where it's like with the Leia stuff. Was Leia is great in that series, but that first episode with her and being chased, oof. <laughs> you know. But but seriously though, like and and, and there are even some other scenes with her that you could tell the actress is not quite there. You know, she, she hits her stride later on, but she's, it's just not there initially. It's, it's a little rough. It's a little rough. 
Um, and the episode doesn't do itself any favors. And it looks kind of like ABC shield television, hmm. you know, whereas yeah. some of the, but some of the, the Obi-Wan stuff looks great. And, it, but, but like I said, like, there's just some weird stuff that like these first episodes are not like bangers. They're just solid. Okay. Episodes. They're fine. And I think that sets the precedence. And now people are ready to like, instead of being like, wow, me, they're like, they're ready to like the, the, the crap on it. Like, oh, that's not very good. I'm going to crap on that. Like, you know, they're not looking at the positives, the pros, mm-hmm. looking at the cons. And I think that is where the problem is with Mandalorian season three. That first episode is not bad. Like, it's a fun episode. I love it, you know, but I as a, if I take my my own personal viewing, like, and like, you know, I, I have a Star Wars bias. I love you have to really be bad to be, you know, for me anyway, bad for me to not like it. <clears throat> not I. Um, but the thing is, <laughs> what have um, Bunny said all the time before that you don't hate the Last Jedi? So. I, 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 I just <laughs> did any me. of us believe it when he said that? <laughs> I don't hate the movie. I just hate aspects of it. I hate aspects of it. I don't. Hate I'm at least honest about the fact that I don't like Rise of Skywalker. Listen, I, I, <laughs> there, I, I have gone on record saying I there are parts there are parts of Last Jedi I love and there's parts that I loathe. I can admit that. Um, but what I'm saying is it takes a lot for me. I can admit that I can admit that like I, there's a bias, there's a bias for Rise of Skywalker and I've been very open about that. And here's the thing, people, you don't have to be, just for the record, a little bit of a side tangent, a little bit is you don't have to be ashamed of your biases. You just have to acknowledge them. And that's the thing is sometimes people are afraid to admit their biases and they're like, no, I'm not biased. Oh, this is, and they try to justify that. Like you don't have to justify you liking something. Like I fully admit, like I, I have, there is a, there are a lot of reasons why I like Rise of Skywalker. Do I think that like, uh, do I think it's a, it's a strong, strong film of like by itself in a vacuum? No, I've always said that. And Last Jedi is kind of like, to me, a little bit like that too, right? Where it's like, but the opposite. I feel like by itself in a vacuum, it's a lot better of a movie maybe than all three of the other movies. But again, it's my opinion. You put it in the context, it's god awful because it totally wrecks so much around it. Now, again, I, I, I'm just saying that for me, but I can admit my biases for both why I dislike things about Last Jedi and why I love things about The Rise of Skywalker. And I, when you, and then going back to the Mandalorian, when you look at the first season or or these episodes, like the first episode of, of Mandalorian in season three, I can admit my biases of like I love it because it's got a big monster being like eating Mandalorians. It's got like a Naboo starfighter zooming around like in silver, like blowing things up. You've got like freaking marauders, basically like pirates. Yeah. yeah, The freaking, um, yeah, Purgles, but, um, uh, the, uh, Anzellans, they're adorable. Like these are all things that I love, but I can see from a, from an average standpoint of not being wowed by that. There's nothing wowing. There's no spectacle in that. And it just, and some of it, it mostly looks pretty good. Like, doesn't I don't think it has the ABC like like Studio Shield feel like like Obi Wan and Book of Boba Fett does at times. There are times where Mandalorian does have that a little bit in this season three, but season opening episode doesn't really have that in my opinion. Um, the problem is it doesn't have the wow factor. The spectacle is not there, and I can admit where it could be like it's not the most engaging of episodes for an average viewer. 
I can see that and I can acknowledge that. My bias is I love it, but for someone who wants to crap on it, that's an easy target. And that's the thing about it is that I can admit that. And I think that the first episode is not strong enough where people are going to, it's going to grab people and get people ready to roll on season two or three, excuse me. And I think, in fact, I would say Minds of Mandalore would have been that episode if they could somehow combine it like a little mini movie. And I go back to that. I think these, these the episodes would probably be better if they're combined and have like, you know, give me an episode like every, you know, three weeks and let me ruminate on it and let me binge it and, you know, get on it. Um, and then because then you have episode two of Minds of Mandalore, which I think is phenomenal. That's an old timer. That episode is some of the best Star Wars I think ever written. But and this is my, it's my bias. Yes. But I'm going to tell you right now, I think it's phenomenal. It's great. It's, it's, just, it's paced beautifully shot beautifully. It is like Star Wars to its core. Phil Tippett to the monsters. Oh my God. Right. Like that's amazing. <laughs> it looks incredible. Um, it, it ends on a great note. I love the themes of it. Um, it's everything I want out of Star Wars, everything. And they follow up with the next episode, which is a, which again, I think it's cool. I like the episode fine. It's my least favorite of the of the whole season, but I think it's an interesting. It was an interesting take. I like the I like them going for it. I love seeing Coruscant, but then you lose sight of the Mandalorian, and then it's weird. It's just its pacing falls off. Mm -hmm. So the pacing of this whole season, it's the worst pace of all three seasons. But I prefer watching that as a whole over season one, even though the pacing is a little off because the payoffs in season three are so good. It just takes a, it just gets wonky at times. And I think that that's the problem with season three. It's not the best paced and people were ready after season, the episode one. And I think the book, the book of Boba Fett being its whipping boy a little bit like, Oh yeah. And, and, and you know, quite in Obi-Wan being like, Oh my God, yeah, all this stuff. People were ready to kind of jump on it. And when you didn't have that season two, episode uh, one season premiere, where was a maybe oh maybe a, a, another episode was one of the greatest Star Wars things ever written. Let's be real. Uh, I think people were ready to jump on it because they were ready to pounce on because people love to, to drag on something. And I think there there were obvious things wrong, not wrong, obvious flaws in the episode that made it an easy target to go on, and that set a precedence. And so when you got great things like Man of Mandalore, because no one was bullshit, excuse my language, no one was shitting on the Man of Mandalore as much as they were the first episode, in my opinion. And then what happened? You follow up with the third episode, people are like, it, it kind of came back. This again in my circle. So I no, talked. It's, a it's lot. almost like that third episode, people already wrote off the season. Exactly. And then when you got you know some great, I think some pretty good episodes afterwards. Um, I like loved the, episode four. Yeah, yeah, and you got the pirate after that. And then you had, um, did you get the Jack Black episode where people were like, oh my God. Oh. And I, to me, that's that was totally the Clone Wars. That's like, that's literally the Clone Wars. Like, it, and people were ready to crap on that. I'm like, it's not the best episode ever. It was fun. And like, my, my wife really enjoyed that episode. Like, a lot of casual people liked that episode. But the people on Twitter, the har hardcore Star Wars fans, were ready to hate on something. It wasn't because it wasn't deepening the lore overall at the very end which again it feels like that third episode you're tagging it on to this mm -hmm. and it, go, go back to where i was said before it was decompressing it wasn't compressing you're stretching things out as much as you can because you're trying to fill the void and you're also trying to fill up story 
again, that filler, because decompression is not filler. You're stretching the filler. You're, you're stretching something out to make something work. And the problem is it, a lot of it doesn't always, it, it gets very thin. And that to me is not filler. It's just you're stretching something out that's quality. Those are quality stories there, but they're way too long. And I think they could decom they could they could have compressed it to be a much more stronger season if they would have combined certain things. So, you know, that to me is the, the flaw of season three. It's decompressed and um it doesn't and it it's the the opening episode doesn't land, and because of that, it gets hate on. But to me, the, the strengths out say to me, the, the pros predominantly outdo the cons. Whereas the last few episodes are phenomenal. They're great. Even though I, again, I'm biased. I love it. There are, it looks cheap at times still. They got the hallway thing going on where they, we got to shoot this in the hallway because it's too expensive. You know, I mean, because because there's amazing stuff that happens in it. You can't spend, you don't have an you know astronomical amount of money. So I get it and I buy it and I'm fine with it. You know, but those two last two episodes are fantastic and I love them. And, you know, but, but yeah, I, I think season three will get kinder over time, but people are just ready to hate on things. I think after that first episode, followed up by the third episode, people are ready to be like, this is crap. Because Book of Boba Fett was a perfect whipping boy because it had some, it had some flaws, some obvious flaws that people were ready to hate on it. And Obi-Wan had the same problem. And I think they both had, opening open opening episode problems and book of Boba didn't have that i thought people were more online with the first two episodes it just was over time that third episode really <laughs> yeah it was the third yeah. episode that was rough <laughs> but then but but then afterwards it kind of got it stayed rough because they again they deep they were decompressing everything so no, far no but then the whole thing with that i was like oh it became mando season 2.5 exactly and and there and there therein lies another problem, I think, with this season because people were, were hating on well, you should have put this in Mandalorian season three, so that better be a you know a banger episode. Because I think if that was episode one, we'd be all about it. Yeah, you know, mm-hmm. so yeah, so that do you see my point? Like, I think it's it was a people were ready to hate and they were hating, and episode the episode one of season three wasn't a banger. It was solid. It was a fun episode. It wasn't a banger. And because of that, people were bringing their pitchforks because they wanted to hate on something. So that's my take. Um, you know, I, I love the season. Mandalorian's the goat. It's it's up there with the original trilogy, in my opinion. And I don't care how many clunker episodes or decompression episodes we're gonna get. It's this is quality. This is one of the best Star Wars ever written, bar F and none. Yeah, I mean if one thing I'll say, looking back in hindsight now, having seen Book of Boba Fett and Mando season three, I do wish that they had saved those Mando episodes for uh, season three so that we could have gotten some more story focused on Boba Fett and his storyline in Book of Boba. And then I think you're right. Like there are not even entire filler episodes, but just stuff in Mando season three where it felt like they were kind of just trying to stretch the story a little bit or, you know, fill some things for time. And it's like, well, you wouldn't have had to do that if you had two more you know, two whole more episodes in there, two episodes that were phenomenal that would have been incredible starts to the season. Now you would have to rework it a little bit because obviously that second episode, like the second half of it is Boba, or, you know, Cad Bane um, back on Tatooine in the Boba Fett storyline. But yeah, you could have worked that stuff in to uh, Mando. But then again, I mean, I can understand maybe why Jon Favreau wanted to put that in Boba Fett to 
somehow try to give the sense that two years worth of time had passed, which I still don't get that sense. But that well, um, rumor is that's not what he wanted either. Oh, I we've we've heard the rumors, and I think we've talked about that before. But I still think, um, and maybe this is just him saying this after the fact. But like he said in a lot of interviews for season three that it was supposed to be uh, two years that Grogu was away training with Luke. So in that sense, it does make sense that you would maybe just have them pop up in another show and kind of check on them and be like, oh, so here's what's going on with Mando and Grogu in the time in between Mando seasons, because it's going to be a while before they're back together again. But I feel like just from the story, you don't really get that sense. Um, I mean, you get the sense that some time has passed, but it definitely doesn't feel like it's been, been two years. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I hear what you're saying about the season not starting off with a banger. I don't know that that specifically is what hurt it most. I feel like it's kind of more just the the lack of focus overall. And this I'm talking about the public perception and, you know, the people that have had issues with it and stuff. I overall liked it a lot for the most part. Um, like you said, I definitely agree that the season had maybe some more high highs and low lows than other seasons it had. Like, it's a bit more inconsistent. Um, but still had, you know, some, some really great episodes and some really great moments. Um, and I feel like they tried something new for this season, which was kind of having more of a a consistent overall storyline for the season. Um, whereas with season one and two, like it felt more sort of episodic. And this goes back to something that, uh, Dave used to talk a lot about with doing Clone Wars with George and, you know, even just sort of their, their original ideas for Clone Wars was wanting, each of those 22 minute episodes to feel like its own, you know, little mini star Wars movie. And even though you would have story arcs and you'd kind of have, uh, you know, storylines that would weave throughout a season, you know, it's like each episode would have kind of its own beginning and middle and end and character arcs and what have you. And I feel like they did the same thing with Mando seasons one and two, where, especially in season two, like obviously the, the through line is him trying to get Grogu to a Jedi and, you know, get Grogu back to his people and all that kind of stuff. Um, but it's a very simple overarching storyline, but each in, and, you know, each individual episode is a step on that journey. And, you know, there's a, there's definitely a thread that ties it all together and there's a progression over the season, but each episode is sort of its own unique visual style in the planet that they're on or the action that's going on or whatever. And each one's got its own, um, you know, story and action and side characters that come in, you know, there's a Boba Fett episode, there's an Ahsoka episode, there's a Bo-Katan episode, um, And so each it's like every episode that season was unique in its own way. You could appreciate it just as its own story. But then they all built over the course of the season to this big epic conclusion where Luke shows up. And, you know, I I think Mando season two specifically is some of the best Star Wars ever. Um, Season three felt like it didn't really have that individuality to each episode, especially in the first episode. It felt like just kind of a bunch of setup. You know, it it felt like the first episode was setting up like three or four different storylines that were going to pay off later in the season. Um, And then nothing really like super exciting happened by the end of that one episode. But it was like, okay, I'm intrigued to see where they go with it. I'm excited to see, you know, what happens over the rest of the season. I thought it was a fun setup, Um, but it certainly was not, um, you know, a, a standout episode in its own right, like the first episode of season one and season two were. Um, but then as the season goes on, um, 
you know, there's kind of more of a focus on Bogatan and the other Mandalorians, and we're going back to Coruscant to see what's going on there. Um, and it just felt like, and you know, so but you would have other episodes where it was like, again, instead of a, a beginning, middle, and end, where it's like, okay, Mando and Grogu, we're going to this planet. Here's the story. Here's who they're meeting. Here's who they're fighting. Whatever. Um, it was like, okay, we're continuing this story thread and, you know, now we're going over here to check on this character. And like, you always had the sense that it was building towards something. And of course, you know, the, the season line storyline or the season long storyline is about them, you know, retaking Mandalore. Um, but you kind of had to be a bit more patient, like wait to see where they were going with all of it, which again, like was an interesting change. And I don't know if that, like, I, I feel like there could be multiple factors there. One, it could be um, Rick Famuyiwa's influence, you know, bringing him on as an, as an executive producer. Maybe that was some of his input or something that he wanted to do. Maybe it was just John Favreau wanting to do something different for this season. Or maybe it was the absence of Dave Filoni's influence, because even though he's also an executive producer on this season, we know that like around the time they're shooting this, most of his attention was on Ahsoka. Um at least we can assume so because I think these were filming around the same time. Like I think Mando started first, but um, you know, Ahsoka was, you know, going into production right after. And uh, I think it's safe to assume that like Dave's most of Dave's focus was on Ahsoka at this point. Um, and I'm not trying to say that, you know, there's anybody to blame for this or anything. Again, I think it was, it was obviously an intentional choice to tell the story this way. Um and I'm fine with it for one season. Like, I think, you know, especially with retaking Mandalore being this big thing, and it's not just about having a battle to take back the planet, but it's about, you know, reuniting the clans and establishing sort of the Mandalorian culture and then bringing back in, you know, Moff Gideon and the Imperials and setting him up as the villain on Mandalore and stuff like that. And so there's all these little pieces they needed to line up over the course of the season um, and so I think for, for this season, telling the story that it told, I thought it was, I thought it worked pretty well for the most part. I can understand why some people didn't like it. Um, and I certainly, like I said, it's definitely not the best season. It's probably the most inconsistent, but it's definitely still got some great moments. Um, but I like what the way it ended where it's, you know, it's like, okay, this is all, you know, they, they succeed in their mission um mandalore is reestablished. the mandalorian clans are united but din and grogu are back on navarro kind of doing their own thing and they're going to be doing some bounties for the new republic and so i feel like we can kind of get back to that individual fun unique standout episode of the week with uh you know things that tie together a longer story thread over the course of the season but it's more about the individual um adventures with mando and grogu and you know not so much on this other stuff and i'm not saying that it's a bad thing that this season focused a lot on bogatan or the new republic or you know any of this other stuff that it's setting up um i just feel like at times it maybe lot like it was still focusing on some cool stuff but maybe lost focus on what really um sort of endeared the show to people in the first place, which was just that central uh, relationship of Mando and Grogu. I mean, it felt like there were particular episodes where like, especially Grogu, there were times it felt like they didn't really know what to do with him. Um, there were at least a couple episodes where it felt like Grogu was just kind of there while they focused on some other stuff. But um, I think I even talked about in some of our episodes where we were reviewing this, I said it felt like the show going through growing pains because it is getting you know so much bigger and it's like, okay, well, if we're, 
going to all these different planets and introducing all these different characters and stuff. It's like, okay, well, at some point we do kind of have to establish like what is going on with the new Republic government at this time. And let's kind of take a look around some of this larger galaxy outside of just Mando and Grogu in their little world. Um, and so, you know, there's some stuff that may or may not have worked for certain people, but I felt like was kind of necessary just to, to kind of expand the world and, and address certain things that had kind of been hinted at up to this point. Um, and so I think the, the playground has kind of opened up a lot more now for what they can do uh, in future seasons going forward. Um, and of course, also, you know, I'm sure there's some little things that they're setting up for like Ahsoka or Skeleton Crew or whatever. Um, but yeah, you know, like I said, I'm, I'm looking forward to getting back to just that core concept of like Din and Grogu going on adventures together um, and seeing what they do with that going forward. But um, at the same time, you know, as a long time, you know, Clone Wars and Rebels fan and fan of, you know, just Mandalorians and their culture and everything, like seeing all of the clans coming together and seeing them retake Mandalore and, you know, especially with that final battle at the end and everything um, and seeing them, you know, fight with uh the Gorian shard and the pirates and everything like there was still some really cool stuff in this season and overall I still really enjoyed it yeah I mean I still love the season is it as good as or I shouldn't say as good but just as on that same amazing level that season two was no and even just the the great start that I got off to with season one but it's just a great continuation of the, a great series and to me it's like I just get I just don't understand the mindset that some people have where it's like one or two things that you don't like or aren't as good. You just write off the entire thing. Like, I just don't get that mindset. It's like you were mentioning earlier, Paul, just like focusing more on the negative when there's obviously so many other positives that are out there. Um, because I agree, like that first episode didn't have the big buzz or wow moment that you saw online after season two. And of course, season one with the very first episode and kind of just some reactions i saw like people kind of questioning this this season like how it's gonna go and by the time like i said they got to the third one some were just ready to write it off but despite you know some bumps in the road with uh the third episode and uh the sixth episode um not being the best of what the series has been i just really love the direction that it went for the story of mandalore and even some of that stuff there i felt story-wise i like but how they got there is probably like my biggest criticism of the season. And I wish I had more time to rewatch the entire season all the way through. I haven't done that yet. I really do want to do that now that it's finished. Just watch episodes one through eight and see how it flows. Because there are certain things like with my biggest thing, of course, was with the reasoning with Bo getting the dark saber back and even just kind of how the armorer was so quick to kind of put her in charge. I like how the story ends in that or goes into that direction with Bo-Katan kind of being the one to reunite the two clans. It just maybe felt could have had a little more time to expand on that or have a little more room to breathe in telling that story while instead of focusing on some other things and some of the other episodes. But overall, it's just the direction and where it led up to the end of them reclaiming Mandalore was just fantastic. And just that fight for uh, the Mandalorians and taking back their home planet was just incredible i thought and with moff gideon revealing what his end game and his goals really were from you know going back from the outset from the very beginning what he wanted was grogu and uh with uh, the best armor and just wanting to make the best possible 
soldier there was, which was himself with the Force in Mandalorian armor. <laughs> I mean, all that stuff was just great payoff for what we were wondering um, what Mock Gideon was exactly after in those first two seasons. And just those two final two episodes were just great and just some of the best of the series, especially that end battle in the finale and just um, what it did, not only just for the Mandalorians as a people, but just for the, your main characters with Din and Grogu, I think, growing closer and being able uh, to actually work together in combat, which of course is such an important thing for Mandalorians and just the relationship that and respect that Din and Bo formed over the course of the season um, was just great to see um, as well. So, yeah, I, I mean, you're going to hear us talk about it more <laughs> as far as the season as a whole uh, on our panel that we did at Phoenix Fan Fusion. But just overall, it's just I think it was a, a great season, but not an amazing, mind blowing season like season two was. And that's kind of it's almost impossible to expect it to reach the heights that season two was because that's to me, that's just a perfect season of Star Wars television. I just loved yeah. every single episode in that season it was just amazing and it was impossible for the third season to live up to that but um i just felt it was a great continuation of for the story that they were setting up here and one of the things that because another criticism i know um was brought toward the season was the lack of focus that din jaren had um and that's something i, I agree i agree with to an extent for um, him being your main character of the season him taking a back seat for a, a few episodes but at the same time, the only reason where I felt that would have been a big disappointment and I'd have a major problem with the season is if uh, that speculation and uh, rumors going around that he actually might die at the end of the season and his story would end there where he didn't have the biggest role. That would have been a major disappointment. But the fact that obviously he survived, the status quo has changed again to where it's going to go back to a little bit more back to basics with just him and Grogu. So that kind of doesn't lie in the fact as a negative to me too much anymore. Um, if there was just a few episodes in the third season over the course of the entire series, we don't know how long it's going to go, but if there's just like one season where he wasn't the focus in a couple of episodes, I mean, I could live with that because the stuff we got with Bo-Katan was just as engaging as well. And just seeing her story progress too. So, um, but yeah, if his story ended the season and this is all we got with him, um, in such a limited role, that would have been a major disappointment. But it wasn't the case. So that's not really something that I think um, is a detriment to season three overall. But um, yeah, so I guess just to sum it all up, and I've said this probably before <laughs> we wrapped up our uh, discussion on the finale for season three, but I just like where the series is at now. Um, it was still a heck of a fun eight weeks um, to watch the series um, as it's been the first two seasons. So yeah, I'm just excited to look forward to where it's going to go next after this one, because it's definitely going to be, um, it's probably going to stand out as the most unique season, maybe, <laughs> of the series, especially if things kind of go back to basics as far as just focusing on the adventures that him and Grogu are going to go on in upcoming seasons. But, of course, um, it does have something that it's going to lead into as well with um, Dave's upcoming movie, and I'm sure there's going to be story threads in the upcoming seasons that's going to play towards that as well. So, um, but it is one of those endings and seasons that felt like it is kind of like the end of a, of a phase for the series, um, especially with retaking Mandalore and him just kind of coming terms to as far as what his role is going to be, just going, becoming more than just a bounty hunter, um, finding 
that connection with Grogu and officially having him as a son now, as he officially adopted him at the end, no longer having to worry about um, leading the Mandalorians and how about the Darksaber um, is out of the picture. So it is kind of a lot of finality to a lot of the stuff that was introduced over the course of the first two seasons. And so it's just almost um, kind of like a fresh start moving forward. And as far as anything can happen now as most of those big story threads are now wrapped up. So um yeah, there was that point where it felt like it was like a series finale, but we know that's not the case. And I'm definitely glad about that because there's definitely more great stories to tell with these characters. And I felt we got plenty of great stories in this third season with uh, these new characters that we got introduced uh, a few years ago. So, yeah, I, I loved it again. <laughs> I'm probably going to just echo what you said, Paul, about being biased. Yeah, I got to embrace my biasness towards Star Wars or just this series in general, too, because it just gave me a lot of what I already loved about uh, these characters and this series, despite a few things that made me scratch my head a little bit or question uh, why they went in that direction. But yeah, overall, I was just completely happy with another great season of The Mandalorian. Yeah, it was, you know, definitely a lot of fun. I think for me, it's hard to it's hard to rank you know, especially this versus like season one, because season two is my clear favorite um, season that we've gotten so far. And I feel like, like I said, season one is maybe a little bit more consistent than this one. Um, but this one, you know, it's because of just the sort of expansion of it and how much more they can do with the volume and the technology and stuff now, like it's got bigger battles and cooler moments than some episodes in season one did. And yet it also has some moments where, you know, it just feels like it's maybe not as focused or, you know, certain things that didn't hit as well for certain people or whatever. Um, but I do feel like of all the seasons, I feel like this is one that you kind of have to rewatch all the way through. Like I definitely have not found yeah. myself. I haven't found myself going back and rewatching specific episodes of this one. Um, like, I mean, after season two aired, I, I kept going back and rewatching like the finale or the Ahsoka episode or the Bogotan episode or, um, you know, even like I love that first episode with the crate dragon. Like that one especially feels like its own, you know, it kind of feels like a mini Star Wars movie in its own uh, own sense. Um, and I feel like aside from rewatching like the finale a couple times and the pirate a couple times and like, I mean, like as the as the season was going, like I would watch every episode like a couple of times each week it's not like i've only seen them each once but um since it wrapped up i haven't really felt like a burning desire to go back and rewatch like specific episodes that i thought were really cool it's more like i'm just gonna wait a little bit and then when i feel like revisiting it like probably take some time to rewatch the season all the way through because again i feel like it is it's more of a big connected story um and less uh you know less of a collection of cool individual stories and episodes um which you know again could be good or bad depending on your preference but um i definitely think you know and they've kind of alluded to this in interviews too talking about sort of the meaning of the title the mandalorian like this definitely felt like it was not just din Djarin season um but that that title of the mandalorian was kind of shared with bogatan and even just the mandalorian as a like the mandalorian culture as a whole um you know, you kind of you could have just called this season the Mandalorians plural, um, because you know it really was just focused on like sort of their struggles as a people and their culture and them retaking their home world. And I like how John Favreau, you know, has kind of responded to some of um, people's criticisms about Din with the dark saber and stuff, and said like he was never meant to be a Star Wars version of Aragorn from Lord of the Rings, where 
you know, he kind of takes up the mythical sword and reclaims the throne that was always meant to be his. Um, and he was like, you know, we tried to show that through, you know, the way that Din consistently struggles to wield the Darksaber. And then you have Bogatan, who has always wanted this and has, you know, sort of continually um, kind of, you know, been in and out of positions of leadership and, you know, has much closer ties to the planet of Mandalore and stuff. And like she wields it effortlessly. Um, and that that was kind of supposed to show that, like, you know, this, this just isn't, uh, you know, kind of wasn't meant to be Din's destiny all along, um, which I'm totally fine with. Like, I think there's a version of the story where you could have gone that way. But I as much as I loved seeing Din with the Darksaber and I thought that was really cool, I also was like, I, you know, it just doesn't feel like it's in his character to be like a king or a ruler or something. You know, he's he's just kind of a a regular everyday guy that wants to get his bounties and take care of his kid. And um, so I think where he's at now, you know, makes a lot of sense. And I like, you know, the story that they've set up for him going forward. Um, but yeah, like I said, it really just felt like it almost was like this season they decided, okay, we're going to have to step back from Din Djarin for a second because we've set up so much stuff with like the armor and the covert and Bogatan and her clan and all the different rules about the helmet and the way and, um, you know, it's like we really have to almost take a whole season to just like reconcile all of this stuff and figure out, OK, going forward, like what is the Mandalorian culture? What is the way? What is, you know, them retaking their home world, all that kind of stuff. So, um, you know, I'm OK with them dedicating a whole season to that and this kind of just being the the retaking Mandalore season um, and then you know, kind of refocusing on just Din and Grogu going forward. Although I'm sure we'll see Mandalore and Bogatan and all that kind of stuff again. Um, but uh, yeah, I think, you know, again, you there's some aspects of it that may or may not have worked for certain people, but I think this season was kind of necessary to um, address some of the story points they had laid down so far. And I think for the most part it worked. And, you know, again, the especially the finale and the, you know, just the, the big battle for Mandalore and everything and finally getting resolution to all that i thought was great yeah i really need to rewatch it all the way through because i think it'd probably have a better flow as far as like i said telling that kind of one long story over the course of the season yeah um but yeah lots of cool stuff i mean obviously freaking love gory and shard and the pirates um i really like that third episode with the the new republic stuff like i it, it, i like i remember sitting there watching it and thinking man, I'm going to get on Twitter after watching this episode and people are going to be mad. Like, <laughs> I can tell that people are not going to like this, but I'm really enjoying it because I love that kind of world building stuff. It just I'm, went on a know, little too long. <laughs> and you could certainly make that argument. Um, or that, you know, it could have even been just its own episode and not sort of bookended between like the Mando and Bogotan yeah. stuff. Um, and I, I, I think part of the you know, again, maybe reason for this season feeling a bit uneven or weirdly paced or however you want to say it is, I think it's safe to assume that they built in some elements into this season that were supposed to be in the Rangers of the New Republic show that mm -hmm. ended up not happening. Um, and with, you know, seeing that stuff on Coruscant with the New Republic amnesty program and then, you know, all the stuff with Carson Tiva and the, the Adelphi base and all that, um, felt like those stories could have easily been told elsewhere and they just didn't really have a place to tell them. And so they decided to build it into the season of Mando. 
um, to again, kind of just expand the world and show you what's going on in other places and how it kind of, you know, sort of ties in with this. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I will agree that like that story could have even been better told on its own or if it had been somewhere else, but for a little, you know, sort of side detour, um, within Mando, I really enjoyed it. Uh, just, you know, it was cool to see Coruscant again. And like I said, I always love that world building kind of stuff where it's like, okay, what is, what are people on Coruscant up to and what's life under the new Republic for people that aren't, you know, way out on the outer rim. And, um, and then of course you get kind of the ominous setup of Elia Kane and Moff Gideon and the empire and all that. So I like that stuff a lot. Um, the Jack Black and Lizzo stuff, not as much. Um, but, uh, yeah, I don't know. Like I said, overall, um, you know, definitely a solid season. I think it gets way more flack than it deserves, even if it's got some issues. But um, yeah, yeah, it's like, great. And I'm already good. anticipating and kind of dreading when season four is about to come back. Oh, can uh, season four save or redeem the Mandalorian from season <laughs> three? Like, we're going to be seeing a bunch of that stuff, or it's like just it's just not accurate. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I hope that's not the case, but because that's the thing. I mean, how many great shows have we seen have one, you know, a few episodes or a whole season that's just not as great and then have another great season after that? Like, um, you know, if season three wasn't your cup of tea, hopefully, you know, you still love season four. But it's not like the whole show is doomed or going in the toilet just, you know, because you didn't like season. Three. Yeah, but which, some people are going to act like that. Of course, which, yeah, I just don't understand that mindset. <laughs> yeah, no, I don't either. Um. But yeah, overall, it's a fun time. Obviously, Mando is still a great show, and I can't wait to see when it comes back. Um, but uh, yeah, now obviously getting hyped for Ahsoka and seeing, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure we'll get some story threads in Ahsoka kind of building off of Mando Season 3. I'm sure we'll see Zeb in there. Um, but uh, yeah, Ahsoka is going to be phenomenal. And then, of course, we got Skeleton Crew coming the end of the year, too. And then after that, who knows? Because we'll see what you know, what ends up getting delayed and skeleton crew ain't coming at the end of the year. I promise you. Uh, I mean, well, they'll push at that least out. It's, it's push scheduled for right now. We'll see. Cause I'm kind of confused by, you know, going back to the strike stuff at the beginning, when we were talking about like WB uh, thinking about postponing Dune until 2024. And it's like, is that because like, you would think that they're done with production by now, but is it because they need to do reshoots to finish the movie? No. Or I think it's is more it promotion just, for it. Yeah, it's, are they just promotion. waiting until the actors can be there for the, the red carpets and the interviews and stuff? And so, um, yeah, I, I don't know. We'll, we'll see. I hope we still get Skeleton Crew by the end of the year. If not, fine. Like, as le at least we're still getting Ahsoka. That's the main thing I'm excited yes. for right now. Um, but and I mean, I know John Favreau said he was writing Mando season four. I still don't know that we've gotten like official green light confirmation that it's officially happening or, you know, in production or whatever. It's and, happening. Oh, Stop yeah. No, I'm not. I'm not saying it's not. I'm just saying we haven't heard much about it. And I wouldn't expect that we're going to now hear anything about it anytime soon with all the strike stuff going on. But yeah, um, true. Yeah, look forward to seeing more of the adventures of Din and Grogu whenever it does come back. Um, but uh, yeah, I think, uh, you know, for now, I'm just excited for Ahsoka and then we'll see where we go from there. Yeah. But um, anyway, I think that's, uh, you know, about all we've got to say for now. But like I said, stick around and uh, you can hear me, Tim and Jason talking about 
uh, some more Mando season three from Phoenix fan fusion as well. Um, but uh, yeah, we'll be back uh, in a couple of weeks, maybe talk some rebels or uh, some other stuff gearing up for Ahsoka. And then uh, it's just now a little over a month until that show premieres. So super excited for that. Um, but uh, yeah, that's, that's going to do it for us. So um, as always, I think we didn't put out a, a question on social media or anything for you guys for this episode, but um, you know, you can always follow us online um, on Twitter at star Wars TSC on Facebook at facebook.com slash Star Wars. The saga continues and you can check out our website at Star Wars TSC.com. Send us email at Star Wars TSC at gmail.com. If you've got thoughts, comments, questions that you want us to read on the show um, and go ahead and leave us a review on Apple or Spotify or Amazon or wherever you happen to be listening to us. Um, if you enjoy the show, we always love hearing from you guys. So um, thanks again for tuning in. That's going to do it for now. Well, we will see you guys next time, and may the Force be with you. See you next time, everybody. Godspeed, Rebels. Good afternoon, Phoenix Fan Fusion 2023. How y'all doing today? That was underwhelming. How y'all doing today? Everybody's Thanks. Everybody's still awake after lunch? Yeah. <laughs> I heard still alive yes and in this heat. no. Uh, all right, well, everyone, thank you so much for coming to our panel. This is the season three recap of Mandalorian. So I hope you're here for the, this panel. If not, stick around anyways. Um, the only reason I'm going to tell you to not stick around is we're going to be talking spoilers about the entire season. So if you've not seen it and you don't want to be spoiled, then why are you here? Um, <laughs> but um, before we get started, you were, well, then good luck. Uh, <laughs> Before we get started, I'm going to introduce myself. My name is Jason Hunt. I am one of the uh, co-hosts of the Wampas Lair podcast, um, and uh, I've been doing panels here at Star or uh, Star Wars Celebration. That's not where we're at at Phoenix Fan Fusion uh, for about seven or eight years now, I think. Um, and uh, I'm going to let my panelists introduce themselves. Who we got? Yeah. So my name's Kyle Avery. I also do a Star Wars podcast called Star Wars: The Saga Continues, along with this guy and another friend of ours. Um, and yeah, I've also been doing panels here with Jason since I think 2015 we discovered was our first one. So yeah, always happy to be here talking Star Wars with you guys. It's fun to be talking Mandalorian. Um, and, uh, yeah. Yeah. My name's Tim Jirasi, the co-host on Star Wars The Saga Continues with Kyle. And this is actually my very first Phoenix fan fusion. So first day has been a lot of fun. This day has been fun. And this will be my second panel I'm doing. So the first one was a blast. And I'm looking forward to this one talking Mando. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Tim and I have been podcasting together for 10 years, yeah. and I finally got him out here from California <laughs> to do a panel with us. So it's been a lot of fun so far. Yeah. Normally, we have another friend of ours, Joey, who does these panels with us, but he got paid to go to another con. So we're a little bit miffed at him. Um, <laughs> all right. Enough of that. So uh, what we're going to be doing today is we're not necessarily going to be going in chronological order and just talking through each and every episode, but we're going to be kind of addressing some of the big themes for a lot of the characters and the different things that we experienced here in season three. It's going to still end up kind of chronologic, uh, chronological, but we'll jump around a little bit. So uh, the big thing is uh, after Book of Boba Fett, we left Din Djarin, the Mandalorian, uh, needing to go on a quest for redemption. He had to, uh, in order to become one of the, the children of the Watch yet again and to become a Mandalorian, at least to his group, he was going to have to go bathe in the living waters um, on Mandalore 
in order to redeem himself. Of course, problem being is Mandalore is supposedly completely toxic and uninhabitable, so that's kind of a problem. Um, but we start off with a quest, and uh, that's kind of where things start off. How we... Yeah, I mean, picking up right from Book of Boba Fett, where the armorer tells him you're no longer a Mandalorian because he had removed his helmet in season two to have that face-to-face -face moment with Grogu before he goes off with Luke. Um, but of course, that being so meaningful to him and needing to be part of that, that Mandalorian culture and his people and everything, we start off right with season three with him being like, okay, how do I get this back? And I'm going to Mandalore, and he's got like a, a little shard of glass from the planet that's been retrieved by like some Jawas or something to prove that people have been there and it might be habitable and so he's going to try to go back uh wants to try to get a droid companion to go with him and um we start off in the first episode with him trying to rebuild ig-11 uh, that doesn't it, quite go well it ends up taking r5d4 instead um but yeah i mean it was interesting just the way they set this all up with uh you know him wanting to return to mandalore and then of course over the next couple episodes we get to see that planet again for the first time and see the aftermath of uh, the the stuff that we'd seen the flashbacks of in the book of Boba Fett, seeing this grand you know planet with the big shining city that we all knew from Clone Wars and everything, and just seeing the completely you know bombed out ruins of it. I think in uh, it was in season two, Bo Boba Fett says something like the you know the Empire turned Mandalore to glass, and when we see it, it's like oh he wasn't kidding. Like this is you know it's been it crystallized by these Imperial bombs and stuff. So it was just really cool to see uh, that in a way we'd never seen before, but. Uh, yeah, it was a, a great quest that Din went on here to start off the season. Yeah, that was one of the surprising things, too, as far as the season. leading Not like to let off with that, but I expected that to be kind of a full season arc of his redemption yeah. of going to Mandalore and then him being redeemed in the living waters. But to have it kick off and kind of end in the second episode was yeah. kind of a surprise. But as we see later on, we can kind of understand why they did that. But it was just still a great way to kick off the season, I think. It was just having the focus on Din's quest to go to Mandalore to be redeemed in his eyes. And as Kyle said, just the visual of seeing Mandalore like that in live action was just a sight to behold. And I felt in that second episode in the minds of Mandalore, it just had a really cool aesthetic to it and just where it kind of captured that more fantasy-based mythical element of Star Wars that I love so much about it. And just have, have an episode entirely dedicated to that was just a really cool way to kind of be the focus of the first half of the season. Yeah. And I will let you guys know, uh, we are going to have time for questions and com uh, comments at the end of the uh, panel, so please uh, save all that for later if you want to interject. Um, but, yeah, I, I think it would, I too, Tim, was expecting this quest to be something that kind of spanned the whole season, and then we kind of got it wrapped up real quick. And I was like, well... Where are we going from here? Well, uh, we kind of start a new quest with Bo-Katan uh, as, as that all happens. He has to get Bo-Katan to kind of help him out on Mandalore. And uh, as he is bathing in the, uh, the living water there, he gets, you know, pulled under or falls off the ledge. And uh, she gets a glimpse of something out of myth and legend and gets started on her own quest to be like, oh, Maybe maybe my dream of retaking Mandalore isn't as far gone as I thought it was. Because she starts the season moping in her castle, you know, just sitting there stewing. <laughs> and uh, now, now she's got this new quest. She's got this new motivation and inspiration to maybe, maybe it all is not lost. And uh, being able to glimpse something out of the legends of your people 
Yeah. Well, something that she didn't necessarily believe in either. I mean, even as she and Din are on Mandalore and walking through and he's talking about all this stuff like it's sacred, but he's never been on Mandalore before. And Bo-Katan, who was raised there, was like, oh, yeah, I've been here, done that. Like, I was the princess. I kind of had to go through the ceremonial motions, but she doesn't really buy into this whole mythological side of things. She's like, oh, yeah, our ancestors believed in the mythosaurs, whatever. And then she's sitting there watching Din go through his ritual of being rebaptized in the waters of Mandalore and he falls in and she goes in to rescue him and she sees the mythosaur down there and Din is presumably, I don't know, unconscious or something. Maybe he hit his head way down there in the water, but as she's rescuing him and pulling him out, uh, she sees this thing that that he's believed in and she's been skeptical about and um, it kind of starts, like you said, a, a journey for her throughout the season and kind of wondering what what does that mean for her? What is her place in all this with all the different Mandalorian clans and ideologies and obviously will uh, become instrumental to her sort of uniting all of that. Um, and yeah, like you said, it was weird kind of that the that Din's quest for being redeemed on Mandalore gets resolved in these first couple episodes, but then it leads to this much larger quest of the Mandalorian people in general reclaiming their home world of Mandalore, um, kicking out the empire that we eventually see there and everything. So there was a lot of cool stuff set up in this second episode with Din and Bo going through there, seeing the mythosaur and all that. Yeah, just the dynamic between Din and Bo in this episode I thought was just great. Because obviously they interacted in season two, but just the fact that it was kind of just them two in this episode, with Grogu as well. But just kind of them seeing the perspective of each one's belief and how they were brought up in the different Mandalorian culture was just great and kind of to see their reaction to all that. And I just think that was the course of the episode by the time it's done. They just built up this mutual respect for each other that moving forward, I think it's going to be like, it forged the bond between them that I don't think that was there before, but now is some I think that's going to last between them like for a very long time. Yeah. The one thing I will say about seeing the Mythosaur is that the only thing I was disappointed in is that it didn't show up in the end battle at the end of the season because that's all I wanted. Yeah. <laughs> I wanted that thing to just like burst up out of the, the crust of the earth and swallow. Eat Moff yeah, eat Moff yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly. And that didn't happen. Um, but... At Whatever. least not yet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yet. He's not getting eaten again. He's <laughs> Well, the myth of Sword. Well, <laughs> yeah. Um, but, of course, as we said, that starts her whole adventure as she tries to now unite the various Mandalorian clans to retake Mandalore. And, well, as we know, that's, um, that's a challenging thing when the clans don't like talking to each other. Uh, they'd rather fight <laughs> yeah. than talk. Well, and it was interesting just seeing Bo-Katan get adopted into Din's clan kind of by accident. Like, he goes into the Living Waters to be baptized. She jumps in to rescue him when he falls in. They go back to uh, the planet where the covert is with the armorer and Paz Vizsla and everybody. And uh, Din is like, hey, I've been baptized in the Living Waters. They're like, cool, you're a Mandalorian again. And they're like, hey, Bo-Katan, you jumped in and pulled him out. Okay, you've been in the waters too. Like, join the club. You're a Mandalorian and now you have, too. And you haven't taken your and, helmet and off since, right? Coincidentally, you haven't taken your helmet off since then. So, so welcome. Um, you have been rescued. Congratulations. Yeah, and so it was cool to see. I mean, and also, you know, right after they leave Mandalore, they go back to um, Kalevala, which is the planet in that same system where Bo-Katan's castle is. The Empire ambushes them. They bomb her castle. So now she has no home. And so Din's clan kind of becomes her new home and her new family. But it's this group that she didn't agree with and she was at odds with and was skeptical about their traditions and beliefs and stuff. And so seeing that mutual respect form, seeing her be like, hey, these guys maybe aren't as kooky as I thought, and <laughs> them being like, hey, we actually can trust her. And you see her start to kind of take on a leadership role in the clan, and she leads, like, some missions and stuff. And so um, 
yeah, seeing that mutual respect build between them and seeing them kind of come to respect each other's ideologies and see that they have more in common than they have, um, you know, sort of being at odds with each other. It was just cool to see that all come together. And one of my favorite episodes of the season was the foundling for various reasons, but one of them was in the beginning of that episode where you kind of see what life is like in that covert where Bo-Katan is seeing how uh, they train the foundlings and just the Mandalorians themselves training with each other. It was just kind of cool to Grogu see. Grogu playing paintball. Right. Yeah. <laughs> just cool to see the Mandalorians in their elements, just training for battle, like seeing how they become the warriors that we know them to be. So it was just really cool stuff. Again, coming from the eyes, we're like the eyes of Bo-Katan as well as we're watching as an audience, thinking, really liking all that cool stuff, and she's kind of appreciating that as well. So was, that episode of The Foundling, it kicked off in a really cool way with all that stuff, but as we'll get to later, some other very awesome stuff yeah. that happened in that episode. Yeah. Um, but we're going to take a slight detour from the Mandalorians in The Mandalore, because we have another main character that gets some exploration into his backstory. So, um, Grogu, we finally get to see him confront what happened at Order 66, which was kind of the uh, surprise in the season that I didn't know I needed and was so glad we got. And if you had Keller and Beck on your bingo card for who was going to be the one to rescue Grogu, uh, buy me a lottery ticket, please. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Um, And that was kind of the biggest, uh, not the biggest, but one of the most exciting things about all that for me is I've been a, you know, Huge fan of Jar Jar Binks since I was a kid because I was the right age for all of that. Thank you very much. Um, so when Ahmed Best shows up as Keller and Beck and then goes and meets up with a group of Naboo soldiers that are not working for Senator Amidala, but the other representative of Naboo, which is Jar Jar Binks. Um, oh, I, wait, did they confirm that? that- those, it, they're Naboo soldiers. Yeah, I mean, we yeah we don't know why those guys are there or where they're taking Grogu. But, but he's friends with the representative. They say that would make sense. So yeah, but I'm yeah. the best characters know each other. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, this was a really cool surprise. Obviously, something that there had been a lot of speculation around. We kind of saw the beginning of this flashback in the Book of Boba Fett, where Grogu's training with Luke, and you see flashbacks to him in the Jedi Temple during Order sixty six. Um, and you know, you kind of see that, that thing of somebody cutting through a door and it like ends there and we're like, who rescues him? Who takes him from the temple? And there was all kinds of speculation. Like was, is it Anakin having a, a crisis of faith and sparing one of the younglings? Is it some other Jedi that we've seen before? Um, but this was something really cool and unexpected. I mean, I don't know if, if, uh, a lot of you realize, but that character Keller and Beck, uh, was played by Ahmed Best in like this YouTube series they did called Star Wars Jedi Temple Challenge, where it's kind of like a game show for kids. And he's this Jedi master guiding them through all these physical challenges and stuff as they're trying to compete for prizes and it's become the, Jedi. The Star Wars version of Legends of the Hidden Temple. Yeah. So it was, it was really cool, but obviously there was no like canon story built around that. So it was a way for them to bring in a, a recognized character that's kind of a deep cut for the hardcore fans and at the same time it's not somebody that there's a lot of established canon around that we already know what's going on with them during order 66 and you're kind of messing with an established storyline there so i was completely surprised like as soon as i I, as soon as that door opened and you see him i was like oh it's all my best and i realized kind of what they were doing and i thought it was just a really cool surprising choice yeah there's such a moment of anticipation when you see grogu going down that elevator you know it's going to reveal who saves them and then when the doors open i was like Oh, oh wait, yes, this is awesome. Where <laughs> we see that that's Amma's best as Kellen Rebecca is the one to save Grogu. I just yeah. thought it was a brilliant move. And I just like also, too, 
Um, since Revenge of the Sith came out in 2005, and we just got a little glimpse of the attack of the Jedi Temple on Order, during Order 66, I was like, man, there's just probably so much chaos that's going on there that would have been really cool to see. And the fact that in the Book of Boba Fett and now here in The Mandalorian Season 2, Obi-Wan Kenobi, we're just getting more insight just to how devastating that attack on the Jedi Temple was during Order 66. And it's something I thought I'd never see after Revenge of the Sith, not knowing we'd get TV series later down the yeah. line. And we're also finding been... a bunch of Jedi that also escaped Order 66 yeah. through yeah. all of these stories and games and everything. But, you know, that's fine. Well, you know, I mean, it's funny. You think about it. During the Clone Wars, there was something like 10,000 Jedi Knights protecting the galaxy. So even though we're getting a handful of stories with different survivors and stuff, and it seems like a lot, it's like, yeah, if maybe... 20, 50, something like that. Jedi survived out of 10,000. I think that's still pretty believable. Fair. Um, they also take a little bit of a detour, and we get some uh, insight and stuff going on in the New Republic. Um, Dr. Pershing is being rehabilitated from his Imperial stuff uh, there on Coruscant, and he's trying to get involved and help everybody out, and it's not going well. Uh, and Officer Elia Kane offers him some help, except she's not really doing that. Um. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, I mean, before we get into, like, Kane and her kind of machinations and where this all leads with Moff Gideon and everything, just seeing this much of the New Republic in this season I thought was really cool. Obviously, I don't know if you guys remember, there was a show that was supposed to be kind of a, a spinoff of The Mandalorian called Rangers of the New Republic that was going to happen that ended up getting canceled, but I think they kind of worked in some of the stuff they had planned for that show into this season so that they could kind of use that to flesh out this time period more and show us like, okay, it's not just mandalorians and bounty hunters and stuff out on the outer rim but here's kind of what the the central government of the new republic is up to in the wake of the empire and the rebellion and all that um so just kind of getting a better glimpse of sort of fleshing out the universe during this time period what the the new republic and the main government is up to um seeing even like you said the rehabilitation program how they're taking uh former imperials in and kind of letting them have jobs in the new republic and stuff but i mean seeing some flaws as well where obviously they're not maybe keeping as close tabs on those people as they should be um very quick to uh to get rid of their military when you know there's still imperial threats out there and stuff so it's kind of setting up for how the uh, obviously in the sequel trilogy we see the the new republic be taken out by the first order pretty quickly and they're already planting some seeds here of how you can see that you know maybe the new republic was not uh not quite on top of things as much as they should be. Yeah, just making me raise my eyebrows a little bit just as far as like how the New Republic is operating and just kind of raising some questions like, is this actually right what they're doing as far as like how they're treating the reformed Imperial, um, th those ones who are in part of the rehabilitation program where it's like they're giving them assigned numbers, kind of taking away their individuality, just yeah. referring to them as their names and just the whole thing with their mind wipe system that they have, the fact that they even have that as a way to, as part of the rehabilitation program, just like makes you wonder, hmm, like that's kind of some of the stuff you would think the New Republic would be doing things in the galaxy yeah. right now. It's <laughs> almost like the Empire was in control for so long that these guys were like, okay, well, we need to have a nice form of government. So like, let's just do what the Empire did, but in a nice way. And it's like, <laughs> or you could just not do that. But, uh, of course, this whole detour is really kind of to reintroduce um, the operative Aliyah Kane and the fact that she's still working actively for Moff Gideon and that Moff Gideon did not, in fact, make it to trial. 
um, after being arrested at the end of season two of The Mandalorian. And that's another thing with the New Republic. How do you, you know, th- there's this guy who's a war criminal who... How do you lose him? Yes. <laughs> he, he's, he's wanted for war crimes during, during the Rebellion era, you know, bombing the entire planet of Mandalore, massacring countless people and they capture him and they send him off to trial and then it's like hey there's rumors that he never got there like we're not even sure it's like how do you not know if you put uh, an infamous war criminal on trial or not right exactly and uh so that that'll we're just gonna write go right into it um he's busy he's very busy uh doing stuff with the shadow council uh they're organizing and they're being sneaky they're also really like maneuvering against each other <laughs> yeah the, you see the, the the imperial remnant uh has no love for the new republic and the, the the rebels as they still like to call them um sometimes but they also have no love for each other yeah like, they've all honest. got competing goals and motives some of them want to stay in the shadows and kind of plan their big schemes others kind of want to just be out for themselves and try to make a profit but this was really cool to finally see because ever since we saw him off gideon and you know some remaining imperial forces at least for me i always had questions about how big is this really like who does moff gideon answer to or is he the top dog are there other people out there like him and just how big of a threat is the empire still really in this time period and uh, this really kind of answered a lot of those questions yeah, it was just really cool because we heard a lot about this stuff and mainly a lot of the novels um, that were coming out and actually kind of see it in live action and see what Imperial officers are actually part of this council. It was just really cool. And as you were mentioning, just they're all like agreeing with each other and saying like, yes, we're all part of like the same team. But as they're saying that, you know, they're just waiting for the other Imperial officer to make a mistake, fall like to gain power for themselves. So it's all yeah. they're all descended from themselves. Yeah. Um. I'm going to hope you can hear all of this, but we're going to play a clip from that. Talion, you always speak with much authority. And yet I see, once again, that Grand Admiral Thrawn is missing from your delegation. Any word on when he will be able to participate in the Shadow Council? With respect. Our one hope for success relies upon the secrecy of his return. Captain, secrets are my stock in trade. I hear whispers from one end of the galaxy to another, and never a word of Thrawn. Never a word of Thrawn. Uh, yeah, Grand Admiral Thrawn's coming, in case you didn't notice. Um, and I love the fact that they start teasing him here, because we're going to get definitely more of him in the Ahsoka show. Um, that's coming up in August, so keep an eye out for that. Um, but the most exciting thing about this whole sequence for me, to be perfectly honest, uh, is this gentleman right here, Captain Pelion. Um, I've always enjoyed him from the novels in the Expanded Universe. Uh, he's... Thrawn's right-hand man and then ends up becoming the uh, Imperial Remnant representative to the New Republic in the old expanded universe and works with with Princess Leia and becomes a good guy and all that stuff. So I've always really enjoyed this character. So to see him in live action made me geek out. So um, I don't know about any of you guys, but I was extremely happy to hear his name set on screen uh, almost more so than Thrawn because we kind of knew Thrawn was coming but yeah, yeah this guy this guy made me very happy <laughs> 
Yeah, I, I mean, I'm not as familiar with him from the books and stuff, but I know his name and that he's Thrawn's like right hand man, basically. And so, um, yeah, just to have them start planting those seeds. Obviously, we had Thrawn name drop back in season two when Ahsoka was looking for him. Um, but now to know that, again, you have this whole council of Imperial warlords that are waiting for Thrawn to come back and kind of realize their grand plan and, and sort of bring them back to power. Um, sounds a lot like a certain expanded universe novel, Heir to the Empire, which was also name dropped in the Ahsoka trailer. So there's big things on the horizon with these guys and Thrawn and everything. So, yeah, this was really exciting to just start getting some of that teased. Yeah, to me, the big surprise was that all the Imperial officers right now were aware of Thrawn because one of the things I thought of was that we knew Thrawn was coming, but maybe no one in the Imperial Remnant knew he was coming either, and his return kind of would have been a surprise for everybody. But the fact that he is involved with the Shadow Council and obviously very involved in the Remnants of the Empire, now we know that for sure. Yeah. All right, enough Cloak and Dagger. Let's get into some swashbuckling awesomeness. Um, Grief Karg has got a pirate problem. Anybody got an exterminator? Uh, well, I guess we do. Uh, his name's Din Djarin, and he's the Mandalorian. Um, but I, this whole kind of side adventure that takes place with the pirates and Grief Karga and all this, probably one of my favorite parts of the whole season. Um, anytime we get pirates and swashbuckling action in Star Wars, I am a happy camper. Um, so this was just all sorts of wonderful goodness for me the entire time. <laughs> um, but no, we. not only is it just fun to have pirates and see Mando and Bo-Katan kind of take them out and work with Grief Karga, get him back again, but it's also a way to get the, the covert, the Mandalorian covert, out of hiding and back into the galaxy, um, and back to Navarro, which yeah. they were kind of kicked out of uh, during season one. So uh, it's really nice to kind of have them come in, do this big heroic return, um, even though they leave like an episode and a half later, but um, have this sort of big welcome back as they make a heroic return, and they no longer have to live in the sewers yeah. on Navarro. Uh, they can actually you know, walk in the light of day and not be shunned yeah they're given attractive land where they don't have to hide and they're like cool thanks we're gonna actually just go back to mandalore now but um i mean it was really cool to see them come together to fight this pirate threat and the the pirates were so much fun the pirate boss gorian shard who just looks like he crawled out of a swamp and you know such a weird character design but so much fun like it was one of those things that, this is a really weird thing but it just works for star wars especially for like you said just kind of a, a fun swashbuckling like pirate enemy um i love the fact that even like his little sidekick was an ugnaught that looked like smee from uh <laughs> from peter pan yeah um just the whole vibe of these guys was really fun the other one vane there who's like his sidekick and is the one that escapes the battle at the end and i think he's gonna be in skeleton crew um but yeah it was just that was such a fun episode watching the mandalorians come together to take those guys out din flying around in uh, that new n1 starfighter that he's got we were hoping to see some really cool action from that and that episode definitely delivered um with yeah. him single-handedly taking out all these pirate fighters and like oh he's above you <laughs> takes one out goes he's, down, below, he's you. below you <laughs> and comes up and he's taking them out from every angle they just can't keep up so yeah um yeah that was probably i mean there were some other episodes in the season that had some bigger uh, you stakes. Know, bigger stakes, bigger, you know, sort of plot implications and twists and things. But this one was just probably the most fun action packed episode of the season. 
Yeah, as you guys said, the Pirates, that was just a blast. Even from the f season premiere episode where they were introduced, that space combat sequence with Din in the N1 fighting mm. off some of the Pirates in the asteroid field mm. was one of the coolest space battles we've seen in any of these TV series. That was great, and it continued in this one. And just seeing the Mandalorians in action was great, as, as liberators, as they were called later in this. And just kind of seeing how they operate was really cool, just like this covert operation squad going against uh, these pirates here. It was just really cool to see Mandalorians in action like this that we yeah. really haven't before. It's having them airdrop out yeah. of the carrier and fly down on their jetpacks and stuff. The armor sneaking up on people and just beating them up with her hammer, you know. Hammer and tongs. Yeah. Literally, she just goes hammer and tongs on everybody. <laughs> so, yeah. No, it's great. It's just great action stuff. Um, yeah. And even though it was weird to have them be like, okay, cool, we saved Navarro and they're giving us a home, but now we're moving right on to our, our next thing. It still, I think, was an important step to see them operating together as a unit, to see them be accepted and to be like, you know what? Maybe it is time for us to retake our home. Like, maybe we actually can do this and we don't have to be these sort of scattered nomads in hiding anymore. I think another big thing for it too was just, I think this was the final thing where the armorer saw that Bo-Katan is going to be the one to reunite both tribes. Yeah. As she saw that. She was, her and Din were kind of the leads in this operation. We see her kind of laying out the plan for all the Mandalorians and what they're going to do here and the fact that it went well and it succeeded. I think that was where the men, the yeah. armorer realized, okay, you're the one and why yeah. she called this her. Is, it's, this is where the armorer buys into the idea that the clans can unite and they can all be Mandalorian and not just different fractious groups at each other's throats. Yeah. And seeing that Bo-Katan um, being from a different group, but then fitting in with her group as well and kind of having success in both areas that she can be the one to lead them. And that's when she tells her, you know, go ahead and take off your helmet. Like you can walk both worlds and you can be the one to unite all of these clans. Absolutely. And uh, so that kind of is the next step of the the quest is to complete you know the, the unification of the clans so that they can retake Mandalore. And of course, the most important people for all of that are Lizzo and Jack Black. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so they're the most important the fate part of, of Mandalore rests in their hands. Oh no! Um, <laughs> no, um, that was definitely an episode. Um, <laughs> But uh, I will say, for me personally, Jack Black, I kind of expected to show up in everything at this point, and I'm fine with that. Lizzo caught me off guard, but okay. Um, but I, I do like the fact that, you know, on this planet, that's where the rest of the, the Mandalorians are set up, and they're kind of hanging out and doing their own, like, security force for hire. Yeah. Um, and that's where we actually have the big confrontation between Bo-Katan and Axe Woves. And she, you know, by right of, of combat, brings, you know, is reinstated as the leader of that clan and can then unite them with the rest of the covert um, from yeah. Navarro. Well, of course, and the Darksaber plays a big role in that as well. Um, going back to the episode on Mandalore earlier in the season where Din is captured by this weird spider looking robot thing that obviously has some kind of organic component to it it's got a big eye in like a glass case or something like that um and general it grievous of, I, no never mind uh, general grievous's deranged cousin or something if, if <laughs> general grievous wasn't deranged enough but um this thing on a sort of i mean it, it sort of was a weird technicality kind of thing but it's like he's captured by this thing and loses the dark saber in the process and bogatan shows up takes the dark saber and defeats the thing that defeated din um 
And I think Din probably at that point maybe realized that. And this is sort of my theory anyways. He he realized that maybe in that moment, but thought I'm going to hang on to this until the right moment, maybe when Bo-Katan needs me. Like she saved my life and I kind of owe her one and he repays her here by kind of coming to back her up. She defeats Axe, but um, this group of Mandalorians that she had been with previously left her and no longer recognized her as the leader because she doesn't have the Darksaber and she failed to get it from Moff Gideon. And they're very set in that way of tradition, um, thinking that, you know, it needs to be won by combat and it's this, this symbol of leadership and strength. And uh, Din stepping up for her and saying, hey, this is hers, she deserves it, and here's how she won it in combat and it's hers by right and is able to get them to uh, accept that. So, I mean, that's not exactly how I thought it was going to go. I was getting pretty excited seeing Din with the Darksaber, but... I also feel like that trajectory for his character never quite fit because he's not really like the step up and take charge, like whole King of Mandalore. Like that's not really his vibe. He just wants to kind of protect Grogu, you know, go about his his business and just be a good Mandalorian. So, um, yeah. and every time we saw him with the Darksaber, it was kind of apparent, like this guy's not really cut out for this. Even, have, even after training with the armor with it, like he was kind of clunky. He'd keep injuring himself with it. And in the one episode where Bo-Katan picks it up instead, we see her be very efficient, take that creature out with it. Like she knows what she's doing. So I think they kind of tried to set that up that Bo-Katan is the one who is kind of cut out for this. And I know some she's people... also used it for like years and years beforehand. Yeah. So yeah, you know. it's not her first run with the Darksaber, but um, I think some people kind of took issue with this season, maybe giving her a little bit more of the spotlight than Din, but I think it was kind of necessary just to resolve this whole plot line of establishing the Mandalorian culture and them retaking their homeworld of Mandalore that Bo-Katan had to be kind of the one to lead that charge and not just Din. Yeah, this is probably still the one aspect of the season that's not my favorite. It's just how Din gave up the Darksaber to Bo-Katan. She got technically, you know, on a technicality <laughs> where yeah. I think if, because she didn't, they didn't really say how she got it to her clan where they kind of just took his word that she bested the one who bested me and the fact that he really didn't, wasn't much of a combat with that creature. It just took him by surprise and he lost the saber and he just, she just happened to grab it off the floor type of thing. So, I mean, she had to get it back at some point, but just the fact that I think that her clan kind of just took it as is and not to the tri typical tradition of just actually fighting your opponent um, who that you got the Darksaber from. So um, not my favorite aspect of it, but I did kind of like what you were saying, how Din was waiting maybe till that time, or he always was yeah. planning to do that. So maybe that's how I need to look at it now. <laughs> and I think it kind of played in with the big theme of Bo-Katan's character over the season, and she kind of repeats this a couple of times saying that you know Mandalorians are like the strongest warriors in the history of the galaxy and the one thing that keeps being their downfall is each other and how Mandalorians are stronger together and we can overcome anything when we're not fighting amongst ourselves but that's and their favorite pastime it is but <laughs> you know this whole thing of oh you have to defeat somebody in combat to take the Darksaber she's like I don't want to do that even at the beginning of the season when she's kind of grumpy and you know Din goes to see her on at her castle and she's kind of like get off my lawn like you know you took <laughs> the dark saber i didn't get it like i don't want to see you anymore but she's not going to fight him for it because she's kind of done with trying to fight other mandalorians for power and stuff and so even though i i can see how this kind of felt anticlimactic a little bit i also think it was a good workaround to be able to get her the dark saber without her and din having to fight over it because obviously like you're not going to have her kill off din um yeah no that would be bad yeah, and grogu would be very mad um <laughs> but uh you know 
being able to unite those clans, they obviously return to Mandalore to try and retake the planet and you know, run across you know, another clan, um, the Night Owls, um, her old clan, Bo-Katan's old clan, so we get even more added to the group. Um, but there's still tension, obviously. Uh, Paz Vizsla and Axe Wolves go at it again and have to be stopped by no, 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 no. <laughs> which is kind of the best thing ever with Grogu, is being able to just hit a button to say yes and no. Yeah. Um. <laughs> yeah, at the beginning of the season when they were like, oh, we're going to resurrect IG-11, I was like, do we need to, though? Like, I think his sacrifice was great. Like, why, why do we need to bring him back? And then, so we brought him back so that Grogu could drive him and do stuff in the finale on Mandalore. I was like, I'm okay with this. Yeah. <laughs> so, um but, of course, returning to Mandalore also returns to trouble because Gideon's there. Um, that's where he's hiding out, and he's got a trap, and he's ready for them. Like, he knows they're coming. Uh, so, obviously, they get into the whole facility. Uh, they, they find out what's going on, and he's, he's ready for them. He captures Mando. They kill Paz Vizsla with a bunch of Praetorian guards, uh, which was an interesting surprise. Uh, and then... You know, they launch the attack. Yeah. I mean, seeing the Praetorian guards in this, too, was a, a cool surprise. They keep sort of dropping these hints leading towards the sequel trilogy, which I think is really cool that we're still probably, I don't know, what, 25 years or so before that in the time period. But just doing these things to kind of add that connective tissue so that, I don't know, maybe another 10, 20 years from now when we've had a lot more TV shows and stories to fill in these gaps, going from Return of the Jedi to The Force Awakens, you're going to see a lot of, a lot more in-between material that it's like, oh, I see how we got from point A to point B and seeing that, you know, Moff Gideon and the Shadow Council and all these guys is already kind of planting the seeds for the First Order and uh, stuff like that. We also see a lot with Moff Gideon and the cloning technology, which we find out he was just wanting to use for himself. But obviously, they also mentioned Brendal Hux, who's... Uh, the father of General Hux from the sequel trilogy, and you know we know what they're going to end up doing with Palpatine and Snoke and stuff. So cool to start getting those little nuggets in here as well. But I mean that scene of just Paz Vizsla, uh, you know his his heroic sacrifice, taking out all the stormtroopers and then fighting those guards was just awesome. Yeah, this was just a great penultimate episode of the season. It's just kind of everything's coming together. Some surprises were revealed like i was not expecting to gideon to have an imperial base already on mandalore yeah. at this point and having those uh, stormtroopers and beskar i mean being pretty much the imperial H himself in beskar right. yeah what an amazing looking helmet and armor um but yeah it was just a great setup to what was going to to come in the finale and i gotta say i haven't been that anxious for a season finale for a star wars series probably since the star wars rebel season two finale twilight of the apprentice but just knowing what's going to happen the fate of certain characters it was just a really kind of anxious feeling leading up to that finale that we got but it was just a great setup for all that stuff and some really cool action in this penultimate episode of course part of that anticipation leading up to the finale how many people in here thought the armor was sus like, not that many people, but Tim, I know you were, we talked, we went back and forth about this a lot on our podcast and there was a whole episode called The Spies and it was kind of the episode where Aliyah Kane was revealed to finally be working for Moff Gideon and they showed the whole Shadow Council and everything, but 
the title was The Spies, plural, and there were no other spies revealed in that episode, and so it kind of had the whole Star Wars fandom pointing fingers at who's the other spy, and who's going to betray them, and who's going to die on Mandalore, and there ended up not really being another spy. So I don't know why they chose that episode title, but I kind of felt like that made the most sense, because, you know, people that were suspicious of, like, the armor or Bogatan, like, betraying the rest of the Mandalorians, I felt like by the end of the season, all their goals were aligned. I was like, nobody would have anything to gain by, you know, the armor would have nothing to gain by sabotaging the rest of the Mandalorians from retaking Mandalore. So, um, but yeah, there was a lot of just wild speculation going into that final episode. And there maybe weren't as many big twists and reveals as some people were expecting, but we just got a lot of fun action in this big epic battle of the Mandalorians retaking their homeworld. I will say one of the, the fun surprises about that, that final episode is... Moff Gideon's cloning chamber, um, yeah, where he's he's just got a whole bunch of clones of himself, all growing and bubbling away and getting ready to to become ripe and ready to take out of the oven. Trying, um, trying to make a force sensitive clone army of himself. Yeah, yeah, clad, clad in Beskar armor. Yeah, that's a uh, that's kind of scary um, to think about because. He's so, like, over the top, I can only handle one of him. Um, so having a whole army of him would be just a bit much, I yeah, think. Yeah, I, I think you know you're a narcissist when you think the best way to keep order in the galaxy is with a bunch of super-powered clones of yourself. <laughs> yeah, exactly. See a therapist. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, we, we do get just some really great action. The, the Mandalorians are obviously able to recover from the trap. Uh, they launch an assault on the facility uh, and all sorts of really awesome action, chaos, and goodness just happens. Um, I, I don't have a lot to say about it because I was just glued to the screen going, ooh, pretty, <laughs> the whole time. Um, except yeah. to say that, you know, the having Grogu run around and keep the Praetorian guards on their toes was just very entertaining. Um, I liked seeing him flip around. Uh, it was nice that he didn't just all of a sudden go like Super Saiyan and become Super Jedi. Um, he had to have Din come and help, but, but the two of them seeing working them working together, together was, was awesome. one of the coolest things. Yeah, um, very effective as a unit. But also, I got to say, that aerial battle with Bo-Katan, uh, you know, in the armor leading the charge with everybody flying in on, on the jetpacks, Bo-Katan igniting the Darksaber and kind of leading them into this final charge to retake Mandalore. I mean, it was like the Battle of Pelennor Fields or something out of Lord of the Rings, like a big <laughs> cavalry charge, but they're all on jetpacks yeah. instead of horses, you know, with, with this epic Star Wars music playing. Um, just one of those things that, like, if you could go back in time to, you know, yourself after, like, Revenge of the Sith or something and be like, don't worry, that's not the last Star Wars. Like, 15, 20 years from now, you'll be watching a TV show about Mandalorians going with all this kind of stuff. Like, And they're going to be fighting stormtroopers on jetpacks. Yeah, yeah. Or even, I mean, this is the kind of stuff we saw in the Clone Wars, too, with, you know, aerial battles on Mandalore with clones and Mandalorians and stuff. And to think that we'd get a, a battle on that same scale in live action with uh, this kind of stuff going on was just nuts. Yeah, because this is one of those action sequences where even during the days of like the prequels and we're hearing all these rumors about what it's going to be like and what they're going to have in the Clone Wars, there was like talk about an army of Mandalorians in this big battle and we didn't really get that. But this is kind of almost that fulfillment or like those rumors coming true. We're just seeing Mandalorians in this big battle and like big things at stake. The fate of their entire planet is at stake right here and them retaking their home. It was just cool from a thematic standpoint, from a visual action standpoint, just so much great stuff and just some that I was hoping to see in Star Wars for a long time. And when I was seeing it for the first time, it was just blowing me away. Like, yes, finally we got something like this. Yeah. It was just great. 
Yeah. And uh, obviously, we're able to finally put an end to Moff Gideon. Um, but not before he puts an end to the Darksaber, unfortunately. Right. That was um, an interesting twist. I did not expect the Darksaber to go kaput. Yeah. And it's weird because I think it, it was maybe a little bit unceremonious. Like, I thought that maybe at the end they would have a, a scene where Bogatan kind of puts it to rest or something. But I do think thematically it made sense that, again, her, her kind of speeches that she gives over the course of the whole season, talking about how Mandalorians need to move past this old tradition of needing to fight each other for dominance and, you know, we're stronger when we're together and everything. So it's like they don't need the Darksaber anymore. Um, even the fact that she gets it from Din and it's kind of just on a technicality, like she doesn't have to fight him in combat to get it. Um, and then obviously like Moff Gideon destroys the Darksaber, takes it from her, but then her and Din and Grogu working together are still able to defeat Moff Gideon, or I guess at least hold him off long enough that he gets defeated by his own falling flaming ship. And, uh, Grogu saves well, Din and Bogatan well, from that. Well, why don't we, why don't we watch that clip real quick? Oh, let's go ahead and watch it. I think this is one case of uh, there's no body left that we can actually believe. Um, if unless if, it's another clone body, no, stop that, <laughs> stop that. Hey, he had a mustache in season two and not season three, so clone confirmed. Oh right, yes, sure. It's not the fact that he was in prison beforehand. <laughs> um, but no, I honestly, the, the Grogu's like knee slide with the force push is probably the best best thing in the world. I'm just gonna say that right now especially after din and, and Bo doing all their slides and jetpack maneuvers and stuff it's like grogu's just picking right up on it and doing what they do yeah no it's a really great uh action sequence to kind of round everything out round everything out for the season um any other thoughts on that before we hit the conclusions uh, yeah no just i mean as i was saying like i think that's a, a great example of the Mandalorians working together and how they can overcome anything together and that they don't necessarily need the dark saber. And so even though it kind of had a, a bit of an unceremonious end, I think the themes throughout the season really kind of set it up to um, just be at a place where the Mandalorians don't need it anymore and they can move past that. Yeah. Agreed. All right. Well, they, you know, we have a couple of little wrap ups that they do. Uh, we get to see the, the living waters be used again as a place of ceremony and a place uh, of ritual and stuff like that. Uh, we get Grogu being officially adopted as Din Djarin's son, uh, which Grogu. is great. He's no longer the foundling. He's he is a Mandalorian and yeah. he Din is Din Grogu. So was Din his last name the whole time? I don't, I don't know, um, but it works. Yeah, it's Din. It's I mean, it's better than. You know, Jaren Grogu. Yeah, or Grogu Jaren. It yeah. doesn't quite roll off the tongue as well. Right. Yeah. Din, 
Din Grogu um, going forward. So that was really cool. We get to see the Mandalorians light the forges yet again, uh, finally returning back to the forges. Um, and then we kind of get our teaser for whatever season four of The Mandalorian is going to be with Din going and finding Captain Tiva again and saying, hey, um, we're now a package deal, me and Grogu, so uh, I need, like, quality and not, like, awful jobs moving forward. So I'm going to, like, under-the-table work for you guys because you need my help. And Captain Tiva's like, I don't know what you're talking about, but sure. Um... And this is definitely going to be what sets up stuff for season four, because season four is going to be what gets the Mandalorian into whatever movie Dave Filoni is working on to sort of wrap up all these TV shows together with Grand Admiral Thrawn and whatever they're doing. So uh, I'm assuming they're going to uncover some stuff moving forward. Um, but until then, they get to chill at their nice little pad on Navarro, uh, which is yeah. adorable. Hmm. Yeah, at least somebody stayed and, and took up grief cargo on his offer for the tract of land. But um, yeah, it was a nice ending here. I mean, it's one of those things where you kind of could end the show right here if you wanted to. It's a good wrap up to the the storylines from the first three episodes or the first three seasons. But obviously, leaving a lot more room to uh, explore more stuff with just going, kind of getting back to the basics of just Din and Grogu going off on adventures together. Um, but also a lot of potential with them working with the New Republic, discovering other Imperial threats now that Moff Gideon is gone. So I'm excited for season four and wherever they go next. I also kind of liked the the little rhyming poetry, if you will, of the season ending where it began with uh, Paz Vizsla's son Ragnar finally getting his sort of baptism in the living waters and being sort of... Uh, you know, made a Mandalorian officially for the first time. That's how they started the first scene of the first episode, and it got interrupted by that giant crocodile monster thing that Mando then had to come in and save them from. So even though, uh, unfortunately, his dad didn't get there to be, to, to be there to see it after Paz's, you know, heroic sacrifice, but uh, that coming full circle and Ragnar getting to uh, take his place among the Mandalorians was cool too. I wasn't necessarily expecting a happy ending for everybody in the season finale, yeah. but the fact that everyone pretty much got one was really cool. And the, as you said, it kind of did felt like a, a series finale in a way, where all the major storylines that started in season one were wrapped up here, but yet still left the door open for where things are probably going to go in season four. And I just love the very last shot of just Din chilling out on his new house, Grogu playing in the field with the frog still, just yeah. kind of like that old Western like feel to it of just the gunslinger out back. And, like, that that pond is going to be empty in a few days. <laughs> well, He's well, going to eat all no, of the no, frogs. No, no, no. See, that's the thing. I think after after seeing a lot of development from Grogu this season, obviously we saw him go off and train with Luke for a bit during Book of Boba Fett. He comes back this season is a lot more powerful in the Force. We see some little moments of character development with him where he's starting to learn things and pick up on things. No, um, he's still going to eat the frogs. No, 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 because the very last shot is him using the force to lift the frog, and then instead of eating it, he drops it back in the pond. He's... I think that was an intentional bit of character development. Oh, yes, character development. He's playing with his food. <laughs> <laughs> playing with his food before he eats it. No, I'm, I'm kidding, but no. I'm... Anyway, um, that's going to kind of wrap up our recap of uh, Season 3 of The Mandalorian. Who's got questions, comments? You were the first hand up, sir. Uh, the question was, uh, 
with access to the living waters and retaking a Mandalore, do you think that reduces the seriousness of removing the helmet? Uh, what do you think? I think so. I mean, they didn't really address that at the end, but the fact that they've united the two factions, the ones that adhere to that way of keeping your helmet on and the ones that don't, I think it's going to be something going forward that is not... It seems to not be a requirement for being a Mandalorian anymore. There still maybe will be, you know, uh, the armor and those guys will maybe still kind of stick to that way of choosing to do that. But I think... Obviously, with all of them being together on Mandalore now, they're not going to be fighting over, like, well, I'm more of a Mandalorian than you because I don't take my helmet off or whatever. So, yeah, yeah. Like, they, they might um, they might address that more going forward in the next season. Yeah. That's Religious the, and atheist, you know. Yeah. You kind of, they're all working together, but it's you different, know, it's different. Different doctrines, but same end goal at the end of the day. Yeah. Uh, user in the back. Yes. Absolutely. He called that out in the episode um, when he shows up in that armor. He said it's like the final generation dark trooper suit. And he said, he, again, with his narcissism, he goes, the, the final upgrade is that it has me in it. Um, <laughs> but I think I think it definitely was intended that it had some sort of enhanced hydraulics or something because, yeah, he's able to crush the dark saber with his hands. He's punching people and sending them flying across the room. So... Um, I think maybe trying to compensate for the fact that he doesn't have the force, which he, we know he was trying to imbue in his clones. But, yeah, there were definitely some enhancements and extra strength in that armor. Yes, sir. Uh, the question was, do you expect Grogu will uh, walk the path of Tar Vizsla because he's a Mandalorian who has the force? That is something I actually really hope is the game plan and end game for Grogu because I think that'd be a really cool thing to do to have that uh, for Grogu's journey to be that next generation of both a Force user and a Mandalorian. I mean, I don't know if he's going to be a, kind of technically a Jedi again since he walked away from that path with Luke, but just the fact that I think to have a Force user who is a Mandalorian is just going to be a great way to kind of honor that legacy of Tar Vizsla at this period in the timeline. So for those, I really hope that's the way they're going with Grogu's character. For those wondering, Tar Vizsla is the one who created the Darksaber. Yeah, and was, was the first Mandalorian to also become a Jedi. I think it's a little hard to speculate on that kind of stuff because Grogu is so young, and it's like if we see him show up in like the new movie they're doing with Rey and her starting the new Jedi Order, that'll be another like 30 or 40 years in the future or something. Grogu will still probably be a kid. Um, so we'll I actually be here, we'll hear him talk, though. Well, yeah. <laughs> Except um, just no, no. <laughs> yeah, so I don't know if and when we'll get to a point where we see him as an adult and kind of taking on his own sort of full story and, and what that might be as far as combining Mandalorian and Jedi ideology, but I think the potential is obviously there. Yes, sir. What, what do you think the significance of the horns on the armor is on the The armor's helmet or... That's a good question. I know that's another reason why a lot of people were pointing fingers at her, thinking, oh, she must be left over from one of Maul's, you know, the Maul's Mandalorians in the Clone Wars. Well, they were the Death Watch. And, that is and true. The, uh, they're the children of the Watch. They're a spinoff of Death Watch. Yeah. So, you know, it's probably just uh, symbolism that's been transferred over. I don't know if it has any significance, but it's definitely just something cool. 
and maybe marks her as the leader of the group. I don't yeah. know. I mean, the horns are in a different pattern that it's not exactly the same as, as Maul's, but that could be a callback to that. Again, maybe she was part of that group at some point. We don't really know. Plus, yeah, yeah, yeah. Moff Gideon had the horns, too, but that's probably more just like, I am in yeah. charge. So I, I kind of had a theory. Moff Gideon's horns were almost placed in a way that it kind of looked like a crown. So it could be just making himself a king. Yeah. But it also could be an intentional callback to Maul as like, hey, that was the last guy to come over as an outsider and sort of usurp the throne of Mandalore. And now that's what I'm doing. So I'm going to have the same kind of cool looking helmet. Ahsoka. It, no. I haven't heard a theory. I can make the connection that any epic, cool character with a big machine gun type thing is going to use it to go out in a blaze of glory because it happens in Clone Wars with... I mean, I'm sure that's partially a coincidence. I'm not going to take that as a theory that it's something that has to happen. But I think it's something that has happened enough times that the next time we see another cool character with a big gun like that, I'm going to be like, protect them at all costs. Or I'm just not, or I'm just not going to get emotionally attached. Yes, sir. How did the stormtroopers get Beskar armor without an armor or a forge? Um, one can imagine that uh, Gideon has access to Beskar because he's in charge of Mandalore, and that they're just mass producing. Well, I don't know mass producing, but producing enough Beskar stormtrooper armor here locally on Mandalore. Um, it's probably inferior. It looks like it's yeah. inferior to the actual. Uh, Mandalorian Beskar. Uh, it's Imperial Beskar is what I would call it. Yeah. Um, but And we do know from yeah. season one because they had those Beskar ingots that they were, you know, the stuff that Mando got as payment for his jobs and they were all marked with Imperial icons. And so I think Paz Vizsla says something when he and Mando have his first sort of butting heads where he says these were forged in an Imperial smelter. So the Empire obviously has their own way of working with Beskar and stuff that they've sort of taken from, from Mandalore. So... I think they don't necessarily need an armor or somebody to work like the main Mandalorian forge to be able to do that. The armor just, is a... It makes better armor when you do, apparently. Yeah, the armor is a, very much a traditional uh, role in the Mandalorian culture, whereas they probably just have an armory for the Imperials. Yeah. So. Yes. It's very, very big. So I would imagine the mythosaur is very, very old. Uh, my hypothesis is that it was in hibernation when the planet was bombed. Yep. And the bombing, you know, did a whole bunch of damage to the planet, and that woke up the mythosaur. Uh, well, not only woke it up, I think it also opened that chasm down to where it is, because when Din is walking down the steps, and it's funny, in that, for, in that episode where he just kind of disappears under the water, I assumed the first time I watched it that the mythosaur had dragged him under, and then apparently, no, that wasn't the case, he just sort of fell, like, at least that's when the, what they tell everybody when they go back to the other Mandalorians, so obviously he wasn't expecting there to be a, a giant deep chasm in the ground, they probably thought that water wasn't that deep, so I think the Imperial bombing opened up some passageways to maybe parts of the planet that had been sealed off for a long time and woke up some stuff that was hiding down there. I kind of think that would be cool, like, symbolically, if it was, like, a young mythosaur, just to kind of, as the armorer said in the Book of Boba Fett, that the reappearance of a mythosaur would mark 
a new golden age for Mandalore, and we're kind of seeing that now, now that they retook it. And maybe it was a young mythosaur that was there kind of in hiding, but and the bombings woke it up, but it is, in fact, a young one kind of symbolizing kind of the reemergence of the Mandalorians on their home planet again. Yeah. Yeah, yeah and the bombs maybe kind of... That could be, too. They cooked it, and it hatched. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, sir, in the back. Yes. yes. Most likely, given <laughs> yes. that Dave Filoni is directing one, and it's uh, said to be sort of involving a lot of story elements that are being... Uh, Worked on right now? Yeah, that are being uh, sort of started in The Mandalorian and Ahsoka and stuff. I would... I find it hard to believe that we won't that they won't find some way to work Mando into that story with uh, just the popularity of that character. Yes, sir. Well, I mean, he was taking out a whole bunch of other Jedi there on uh, in the Jedi Temple, so maybe this one just slipped past him? I don't know. I mean... That is a good point. That, that like, Even if Anakin didn't see him while he was escaping the temple, if there was like one baby youngling in the temple that looked like... You know, that was the, the same oldest Jedi as in the temple. I, well, yeah. Yeah, and you know what's the, what's ironic too is Grogu is actually the same age as Anakin, years wise. Like so, so Anakin <laughs> probably would have grown up. They probably would have. Yeah, like so. I I don't know. I'm sure Anakin Anakin had a lot on his mind that night. Maybe he wasn't quite thinking clearly enough to go. Oh, I should go after the Yoda baby as he is killing all these other kids. I mean, like, it's also you know. I mean, we the, still don't know what happened in. We saw, we've seen Keller and Beck take Grogu away during Order sixty six, but we still don't know what happened between that and it's still twenty thirty years later that the Mandalorian takes place. So we don't know what happens to Keller and we don't know if Vader or the Inquisitors or Palpatine or somebody else came after Grogu during that time period. Obviously, something happened to him because he's not with Keller anymore and he's kind of off on his own, and all these bounty hunters are after him. But the Empire's trying to find him again, so. Um, Probably we'll get yeah. something um, to fill in those gaps. I, I hope so because I'd like to see what happens. Yeah. But uh, my guess is it probably will be like a comic book or something. That would be my, you know, that's my inclination. Is that's probably where it will be. Will it will be done? So. But we could get more flashbacks in future seasons too, depending on how much of that story they really want to flesh out. Or if they're just going to leave it at, okay, we know how he survived Order 66 and that's it. But I think at some point they'll give us some more hints as to how Grogu ended up where he did at the beginning of the series. All right. Yeah. Yeah. All right. I think we got time for one more question. Then we're going to have to wrap up. But we'll be, still be here afterwards if you guys want to talk. Yes. I say yes. I, he was obliterated. He was vaporized. Um, everyone no. else here I, is saying I, clones. I I say yes. I, if, if he shows up, I he, I put I put my credits on yes, but 
again, when you introduce that he's got clones, I mean, we saw a few of them there in the base. There could have been more elsewhere. We don't know. I think there's certainly room for them to bring him back somehow if they wanted to. I, do, I don't think so. He was but very, I, very, very, very angry when yeah. he when all the clones were dead. He was like, they were my children! Well, we yeah, also no. thought Palpatine was dead for the last 40 years, too. So I'm just saying... <laughs> It, it's it, never say never, but I would say at this point they they seem to be pointing more in the direction of okay we're moving on to Din and Grogu hunting down other Imperials. So I think for now he's done. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming. Uh, we'll be back in this thank room you, at six o'clock for another panel. So if you want to come back, stay. Uh, we'd be happy to see.